Now, I'm not one to believe in the mystical or spiritual or anything like that, but I believe my family has a guardian angel. My grandmother passed away when I was like three, and it was really tough on my mom, so there wasn't a lot of pictures around the house. So there's not a lot of reference I have for her. I kind of picture her like, you know, an idealized version of a grandmother. So jump ahead till I'm about 15 or so, and my littlest brother's about five. We're at the extended family Christmas party, and my uncle gives my mom a present, and it's a it's a beautiful photo of my grandmother. And I hadn't seen a picture of my grandma probably about five or ten years, but I know for certain my littlest brother probably never saw one of her. There's none in the house, and I don't know where he would have saw it. But my mom opens that picture, everyone starts to cry, and my little brother goes up and says, Hey, that's the uh, lady from the roof. And everyone stops and goes, um, What do you mean, lady from the roof? And, you know, Darren continues with his little story and says, Yeah, the lady. Every Christmas when we all come over here, she's sitting on the roof. She always waves and she's always smiling when we always get together. I always see her every Christmas. And right about then is when every adult in the room started crying and my jaded little heart opened up to the idea of there being guardian angels. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome everybody back to the show. We've missed you all so much. My goodness, what beautiful, lovely people you are. I'm so glad you haven't covered those little cameras with tape yet. Don't listen to what Fox News says. I love seeing all your smiling faces. You're going to scare so many people off. I know, but I sound fun, right? Like I sound like a fun, crazy person to have looking at you. Hmm, sounds familiar. (laughs) What? What? Fun, crazy people do you have looking at you? I want to talk about it. Uh, Okay. So we do want to welcome everybody back. Thanks for everyone that's leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. Welcome to all of our new listeners. Um, We do want to let everybody know that we're available on social media, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Just a Story Pod. I mean, there we post fun stuff and have discussions about things talked about the show. So come and uh, join in the convo. Conversation. There's really no need to abbreviate. It's not like you take more letters when you type or something. Grammar is important. Let's do meditation. Okay. So if you want to, you can come and find our website, which is a lovely, lovely place where all of my artwork is and all of our sources hang out. And we also have links to the Just a Story shop where we have merch that you can order and then wear or brandish if you choose an item that is not a wearable. And then we also have a link to the Pause Go Read It store where all of our book suggestions are housed and cataloged together in one big, loving, happy family of bookiness. And on there, you'll also find a link to our Patreon page where you can help support the show and also get access to lots of fun extras and rewards such as stickers, online meetups, chances to come on the show and help us create the show, and access to our exclusive Patreon mini-episodes. Just the stories. And there we look at crazy 
historical events that are stranger than fiction. And I want to thank Ucky Egg for being kind of our guardian angel and uh, defending us on our iTunes reviews. So that was kind of cool of you. And topical. And before we talk about guardian angels, we do want to mention that if you have a story or something you want us to talk about, some kind of suggestion, please get in touch with us through email at justastorypod at gmail.com through any of our social media, or through the Urban Legend Hotline. The Urban Legend Hotline. We have a red phone like they have in Batman. It's amazing. And when it rings, we don't answer it, but we do have a voicemail where you can record your story. And the number for that is 512-222-3375. So you said Guardian Angel. Yeah, I did. So I hope all of our listeners have brought their Guardian Angels to this episode to listen and you know, share your share your ear pods, share your buds. Really, share your buds. Share your buds. It sounds like weed. Share your buds. That's how you see, <laughs> that's how you see your angels. Okay, yeah, sure. Because if our audience is representational of the rest of America, everybody believes in angels, right? <laughs> so <laughs> half of people in the U.S. believe in angels. And guardian angels specifically. I was going to say, really? Just 50? But I can buy a 50 believing in guardian angels. That's about the same as evolution. Oh, well, good. Good to know we have a good, strong basis, in fact, moving forward. And I want you all to know that it has been an act of God itself to record this episode. We have been stopped at every turn. It's like every time we try to take on something a little lighter and a little more positive, the universe says no. Or maybe it's our angels. Our angels don't want us to record this episode. What would your angels tell you? My angels tell me to open the wine. Done. Okay, well, amazing. This one's a screw cap. (laughs) Oh. When I think of guardian angels, I think of, you know, I was raised Catholic in case anyone didn't know that. Welcome new listeners. (laughs) I think of like the medallions. I think of the pictures that always hang in kids' walls. Is this painting? I should looked up who did it. Of like these two children, like walking along a road and a bridge. Yeah, and a big, radiant glamazon of an angel. Yes, huge wings just kind of guarding over them. And that's we have one. It was gifted to us for our kids. And I kept it because your grandmother hung that in every child's room. Yeah. Uh, that she had, and she recognized it when I opened it at the baby shower and was like, oh, I'm so glad that you're going to have a guardian angel for your baby. And I was like, okay, that's kind of sweet. I can't dispose of it. It's also printed on tin, which is really cool. Any of us who lived through the 90s were bombarded with Raphael's angels in every bathroom. For some reason, they were always in the bathroom. Why are angels watching me pee? I don't know, but that is a great place for them, apparently. And, you know, we had the like precious moment angels and we had like the sculptural kind of faceless uh, super curvy angel thing that everyone has from homework they were very popular in the late 90s to mid 2000s and stuff shows like touched by an angel yeah. michael the movie with john travolta uh, heaven can wait with warren Beatty was slightly earlier but also majorly important Yes, it was such a thing. It was a thing. And it still is a thing, but it's kind of shifted into more fringy thing territory. What do you mean fringy? Like, you know, crystals and uh, wind chimes and, you know. New age. New agey thing stuff. And it was that then too, but that's where it's kind of 
taken up residence. Wonderful. I love new agey things. I went and looked around for experts on angels in this kind of secular, non-denominational, touchy-feely sense. Crystallology, angelology. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so I found a woman, and her name is Doreen Virtue, because of course it is. And she has a plethora of material on this new idea of angels. Now, she is a professed Christian and does have a personal relationship with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in addition to like 50,000 angels. So it's apparently like a polyamorous relationship. Hey, whatever floats your boat. It's floating. Something's floating. So. She uh, outlines her ideas about angels, and I thought I'd share those with you. So what I'd like you to do, if you're um, listening, is take a deep breath and get all the negative energy out of your system and just fill yourself with light and connect with the earth and the sense of nature that surrounds us all and exhale all the negativity you've been holding on to and just open your heart and your now mind. Take a, now take a deep breath. And hold it. All right, now we're ready. All right, all right. Um, Pass it along. So, firstly, she discusses guardian angels. And I feel like I have to use this voice when I do this. Because it's the voice she uses. It is. Please Google her videos. Google her videos. There are pigs and goats and sheep and a little dog named Precious that make appearances. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It is. So, first of all, there are guardian angels. Everyone has a guardian angel, with no exceptions. I've met people who doubted whether they deserve to have a guardian angel. Please know that you have a guardian angel with you, guaranteed. This is an angel who constantly stays with you, from birth until the time that you transition back into heaven. Transition? Uh Uh-huh. This angel's love for you is unconditional and bigger than anything on this earth. Your guardian angel makes certain that you are safe and guided always. Now, sometimes guardian angels can be confused with spirit guides. Spirit guides? Spirit guides. What's a spirit guide? Spirit guides were once human. What? Yes, but they went to a special seminar conducted in the heavenly realm on how to be spirit guides after they passed on, and they were charged ninety nine ninety five, which is the same amount that I charge for my workshops. Oh, good. Uh-huh. So she really does say that these were spirits that were once humans that then had special training in the afterlife to become spirit guides. Just to be completely clear, we do have a scientific difference between angels and spirit guides. And this is just a quick test you can do if you have access to a clairvoyant who can see auras. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, well, there's a shop in Austin that has an aura machine. Well, I don't think angels go in the aura machine. What if you could ask them politely to go in the aura machine? I don't know. I'll ask mine. His name's Clarence. We're buds. Okay, so clairvoyants say that they see angels' auras as bright white, while spirit guides' auras are less bright white. So these are your guardian angels. Now, there are also just plain angels. And these plain old angels are beings of light who respond to our calls for guidance, assistance, protection, and comfort. God's thoughts of love create angels. Here, I thought it was bells. She says that fairies are just nature angels. Oh, fun. Yeah, right? Her and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle are buying those pictures. They still maintain that they were true, right? Even though those illustrations were done by his father. And he didn't recognize them. Hmm. Hmm. The angels are here to help us, especially when our intent is to bring joy and healing to the world, like mine. 
Ask for as many angels as you want to surround you. Ask for angels to surround your loved ones, your home, your business. Angels receive great joy at helping us. Archangels are here discussed. These are angels who are supervisors of guardian angels and angels upon the earth. You might think of archangels as managers among the earthly angels hierarchy. You can call upon an archangel whenever you need powerful and immediate assistance. So, so what do the other angels do? They may take some time. You have to have a relationship with them. Like angels. three to five days, yeah, business so, days, yeah. red tape. Because of the law of free will, in quotes, Angels and archangels cannot intervene in our lives unless we specifically ask for their help. Perhaps you sense a warm brush across your face, shoulders, hands, or arms. You might feel their hug or brush their wing across your skin. The air pressure changes when angels enter the room. There's a palpable thickening and a delicious cloud that's just rolled in to shield you from the heat. I feel this delicious cloud. It's like cotton candy. Yeah. Two, the room temperature may seem to shift, or you might catch a whiff of a beautiful, lilting fragrance. Whoa, no. Uh Uh-uh, don't smell it. Is it gardenias? (laughs) If you're in Mattoon, close your windows. If not, love your angels. We have a new theory. (laughs) The mad archangel of Mattoon. Let's make a script right now. When angels hug you, you feel a deep warmth flow through your chest and your heart expands with an unearthly love. You hear an angel's presence in a loving whisper in your ear that urges you to improve your life. That's your mother. Or an unmistakable shout of warning to watch out. That's your mother, too. (laughs) Same thing. A voice inside your mind counseling you to reach for the stars and the sweet strains of music coming from nowhere. These are the sounds that angels make. Oh, fantastic. You might want to know, like, what are some ways that I can get more angel in my life? Because I'm digging the angel. Sure. So one way is angel tarot. Angel tarot? What? I know. It sounds very counterintuitive, does it not? This is Doreen's Amazon summary for one of her decks. She's created like 7,000 decks of angel tarot cards. Why you need this many, I do not know. But you do. To sell them. Uh, Apparently. And she has fairy decks, and she has mermaid decks, and child angel decks, and all kinds of decks. 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 Don't be a deck. Don't be a dot. Tarot has long been revered for giving detailed and accurate forecasts. Doreen Virtue and Radley Valentine have created the first deck of tarot cards that are 100% gentle, safe, and trustworthy. All of the words in this deck, as well as the artwork by Steve A. Roberts, are positive and beautiful, while still retaining the magical effectiveness of traditional tarot. The accompanying guidebook explains the general meaning of each card and walks you through the steps of giving an accurate reading for yourself or others. Rich with symbolism and imagery, including angels, archangels, unicorns, fairies, mermaids, and more, the Angel Tarot cards will provide you with an inspiring guide for your journey. Okay, that's interesting because every time I've seen tarot in a movie or in TV, there's like one card in the tarot deck and it's this evil looking card that says death. Right, which to me, the devil's way scarier than death. If you want to get it down to just horror imagery, the devil's got that beat like by a long shot. But I mean, you're right, it has that horror imagery. Like, yeah. So the new angel terror is sweet and loving and will show you a positive light. But that's kind of a new development, right? Okay, yeah, that's not what tarot is. Tarot kind of works, and go with me here. Tarot works by connecting these very easily understood 
images of archetypical events, scenarios, emotions, and characters from stories for millennia in a way that we can cast them like lots. And that's kind of where that energy comes from for Tara and where the imagery and its effectiveness comes from is pulling on these very human ideas. And so Angel Tarot takes out all the negativity. Oh, yeah. Which if you take out all the negativity, you've got a third of your life, maybe, that this could actually apply to. It's things like drudgery. Drudgery is not going to come up in Angel Tarot. That's just silly. And in addition to whatever image they have, first of all, these are photographs with like wings drawn on. Well, sometimes. Sometimes they're illustrations. Her deck. Oh, okay. And it also has like fortune cookie little sayings at the bottom. Like, it's time to walk away from your vices or whatever. So it really is, it's like one, it is one step above a fortune cookie. And also you can use crystals to contact angels and you can have- use crystals for- Maybe you can have angels come and empower your crystals and bring energy into them. They become an extension of this kind of new age idea of like spirit energy. And the word angel just has been completely appropriated. Yeah, right. The idea of angels in new age kind of almost mysticism, you can call it if you were to compare it to religions. It's nothing like the original ideas of what angels are. Interestingly, I read a Catholic blog about the new agers idea of angels and this just tickled me, so I thought I'd share. New Agers have more recently become almost fanatically excited about angels. They have bought into a plethora of wildly unbiblical ideas about angels that nevertheless have great appeal to in today's religious climate. One reason cited for our angel popularity in New Age literature is that angels offer people a spirituality that does not involve a commitment to God or his laws. Sophie Burnham, author of a book of angels believes the current popularity of angels is because we have created this concept of God that is punitive, jealous, and judgmental while angels never are. They are utterly compassionate or as time magazine put it for those who choke too easily on God and his rules. Angels are a handy compromise, all fluff and meringue kind, non-judgmental, and they are available to everyone like aspirin. Oh, good. Fluffy meringue. So all of that couldn't be any further from the truth of what the idea of angels really are. You know, I mean, I grew up in Catholicism and really did not know the huge amount of information there is out there about angels in the kind of canonical text and important writings in all of the kind of Western religions, meaning Judaism, Catholicism slash Christianity, and Islam. Right. And I grew up Baptist, and we come from more of a Calvinist tradition. And John Calvin said, get those angels on out of here. They're not important. People are worrying about them far too much. That's cockamamie ninny muggins. I want none of it. And so I barely knew there were angels. I kind of thought angels left with Jesus. We had them at Christmas and really no other time. And so angels have been around in Judaism since the start. So 6,000 years ago. Yeah. So the name for angels in Hebrew is Malek, meaning messenger, and angelos in Greek, meaning the same thing, but where the word angel comes from. One of their chief jobs are messengers. They bring messages from the divine world to humanity. Like Hermes. Messenger of the gods, the fleet-footed Mercury. 
And they can also act the other way around as messengers from the human world to the divine. And as quoted, the soul speaks to the angel, then to the cherub, the cherub to God. And cherub being one of the angels. Okay, so bureaucracy and red tape. I like it. There's a lot of bureaucracy in angeldom. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. So they do protect, guard, sing praise. And they, like I said, belong equally to Judaism, to all forms of Christianity, and to Islam. But there are also these ideas, like you mentioned, um, with Hermes, and in other Cultures around the world, Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Egyptians, Greeks, etc., 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 with these winged messenger spirit-like beings. Okay, so like anytime you have people putting the category of the human world and the divine world, you're going to need a go-between. And so we have a proliferation of angels or messengers. They play an important role as, like you said, kind of that... Intermediate. Yeah, liminal being. We always like to talk about liminal beings. We do, actually, a lot. In many traditions, especially in Judaism and in Islam, they are beings without free will. They only do what God tells them to do. They just carry out the tasks that he entrusts them with, I guess you could say. They're like little bits of God. They're kind of like sloughed off. Well, they are, but they are separate beings. Okay, so... So, Still saying dandruff. They're little bits of God that have kind of fallen off or split off or whatever, but they they only have his will and they only do what he says and they're made of the same stuff he's made of. Well, no, they're not because they are separate beings. Okay. So they were created. So he planted angel seeds. No, not like he didn't plant human seeds. He, <laughs> he did, said, sure. uh, let there be angels. And there were angels. Right. And some people say that they came about when he said, let there be light. Light. I like that. That's kind of poetic. I right. think William Blake would have really gotten on board with that. So even though they can, even though traditionally they can only follow God's will, so they were created by God, but they're not omnipotent like God. In Psalms it says, "What is man that thou art mindful of him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor." So it kind of sets that hierarchy. There's like God, then there's angels, then there's man. I'm fine with that. I don't need to be an angel. Even though they only can follow God's will, there's also this kind of contrasting element of, you know, they can rebel. Right. So I guess they have free will. They just defer to God always. Like that's what they're programmed to do. But sometimes you get a glitch. It's hard to say because then in other writings, they'll like argue with God and about things. Like maybe you shouldn't do that. And he'll be like, shut up. Shut like up. about making man. Shut up, dandruff. Stop calling them dandruff. They are so God's dandruff. Your guardian angel is going to leave you. Pert Plus loves me. That's my angel's name. That was Clarence. That's my other angel. I have several. I have as many as I want. You called them all down. (laughs) But the nature of angels like this has been just written about and talked about so much over the millennia. You know, there's the famous quote about how many angels can you fit on a pen? The head of a pen, yes. Yeah, which is... Thomas Aquinas, right? It's not, actually. Uh, Yeah, it is a lot of times cited as him. You know, you might see that on Facebook, like a little meme, Thomas Aquinas, it wasn't him. He's actually a satirical writer in the 16th century, Francois Rabelais. Oh, okay, yeah. That that guy. mentioned before. That's the guy that drew the lady flashing her bits to the devil and making him fly away. That's right. Magic vagina power. (laughs) No, he actually said... In the 13th century, whether a multiplicity of angels can coexist in the same place. So he was just talking about the nature of them, kind of their 
physical attributes. Like, do they kind of have a physicality? Do they take up space? Yeah, exactly. So he's talking about like atoms and things. <laughs> Before anybody, really. He's doing a good job there. It's an interesting idea. But another interesting thing is St. Augustine wrote that angel is the name of the office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. Right. So he's saying that they're actually these kind of spiritual beings, and angel is more what they do, their title. Right. They're messengers. They're spiritual messengers. Yeah. And sometimes they're described as bodiless powers, meaning they're just purely spirit rather than material. You know, they only become material whenever God's like, go and Show yourself. tell them yeah. exactly, or when he wills it. Or when artists need to depict them. Correct. Another interesting point is that Thomas Aquinas said that angels represent the ultimate possibility for humanity and like an intellectual being. Like they are our superiors and we should be trying to be more like them. There's an interesting idea because we don't know very much about angels other than what kind of writing by theologians. Well, I, I see what he's saying if he thinks, and he does because he's kind of written on it, that angels are pure spirit, right? They have no flesh, And we're in this age where the flesh is corrupting and the flesh is what makes man bad. So if we could just lose all of that, we would be angels because we would be pure spirit. No, yeah, I can definitely see that. You know, he also talks about how they do not experience, they don't eat, they don't experience joy through like sex and physical pleasure. In some traditions, even have them being unisex. Or Um, genderless. Yeah. And another important point he makes and is pretty much upheld by the major religions is that angels are not like ghosts. They are not the past humans that have died and are now mm-hmm. put in that role, which is kind of seen in popular culture. Right. They exist. They've existed always as spirit. So the first appearance of angels in the very beginning of the Bible, and that is in Genesis, where a cherub with a flaming sword guards the Garden of Eden. After the fall of man. Yes. When they can't come in anymore. And not letting them get back to that sweet, sweet fruit. It was so good. We also have cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, flanking the mercy seat. Mm-hmm. Which is where God's supposed to sit, kind yeah, of. Yeah, and they would like do sacrifices to it there and things like that. Okay. As we've all seen Indiana Jones, I assume, by this point in our lives. Hopefully. We know that that film is factually accurate and the Ark of the Covenant is a Nazi melter, if nothing else. It's all that matters. All that matters. But you will notice that the figures on the top of the Ark look very reminiscent of Isis. They do. They look very reminiscent of several things, really. They look like that. They also kind of look like those Mesopotamian guardian mm-hmm. figures. But it's not what we think of as angels today. No, definitely not. Another interesting type of angel seen mentioned in the Bible very briefly are... The Watchers. Oh, I know them from comics. What are they in the comics? Giant heads. Yes. And they're bald. And they see all the important stuff, but then they always like mess with it when they're not supposed to. So these guys kind of do the same thing. Yeah, well, of course they do, because people in comics know their history and culture and things. Right, right. So Watchers are very briefly mentioned in Genesis in one line. They're also mentioned in David as well. But in other books often called Apocrypha, and those, so those are the books that Didn't are, make the cut. They didn't make the cut. They've been around for millennia. They often inspire and... They're often incorporated into the traditional beliefs. Yeah, like parts of them kind of filter in. 
But they're not officially sanctioned. Right. So they're mentioned more extensively in the Book of Jubilee and the Book of Enoch. No Jubilee from comics, too. Different Jubilee. She makes fireworks. Different Jubilee. Okay, fine. (laughs) In these books, it says, For in his day, the angels of the Lord descended on the earth, those who are named the Watchers, that should instruct the children of men, and that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. Okay, so narcs. Well, yeah, well, they're supposed to almost be like a guardian angel. They come and they watch and they help out. But they instruct, too, and I think that's important. They're, yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, they're like there to kind of be like, hey, what you doing there? That's that's a taboo. We're not going to do that. But turns out, especially in uh, these ancient books, you've got good and bad watchers. Yeah. So in Genesis, the only line says, the sons of God saw the daughter of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives. So they liked the ladies. They yeah. liked the earth yeah. ladies. They're like, I could maybe do something with that. Yeah. Keep it casual, and uh, maybe I'll show you my etchings later. And so they produced a race of beings. Hybrids. That were part hype, yeah, part watcher, part human, called the Nephilim. Okay. And the Nephilim are these savage, giant-like creatures, and they're mentioned several times in the kind of canonical text. And they pillage the earth, endangered humanity. Semyaza, who is the leader of the Watchers, whose name means infinite rebellion. Oh, no. Why? He was a bad person to put in charge. Never put a person in charge whose name is infinite rebellion. Right? They were not thinking this through. And his associates further taught the humans about arts and technology, like weapons, cosmetics, mirrors, sorcery, and other techniques. Okay. And so it was very, like, monolith-like. Oh, like 2001 puts the big black monolith down and everyone looks at it and suddenly they're imbued with all of this knowledge and it's just too much for them. It's just too much all at once. Exactly. It's a jump start. And then you turn into this fetus flying in space. So It happens to everyone. It's like when you find the internet for the first time. Same, same. Like Reddit. And so with the Nephilim and the Watchers being this bad influence and corrupting humanity with their sorcery and black arts... God was like, uh, no. And Reset. This, yeah, and this is why, in Jewish tradition, he f- causes the flood. Huh. The great flood. The I Noah mean, one. Purge. The Nephilim are in Darren Aronofsky's Noah, which I've not seen, but hmm. now I kind of want to, because I want to see the Nephilim like fight Noah or whatever. You know it's going to be epic. So... There are crazy ufologists, 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 whatever you call them. I don't think it matters. It does. It matters. Who think that the Nephilim and the Watchers are an ancient space race. Right. Like the Watchers are the aliens and the Nephilim are like the hybrids hybrids, and they now control the world government. They've uh, had several spawnings and several different offshoots, but those are the most ancient and now Obama's a reptilian. I don't know. I can't keep up. That's really complicated. I literally just read that on Facebook. (laughs) Obama's a reptilian, and that's all we need to know. And so throughout the rest of the Bible, they really do act as as messengers. You you always got to take those Genesis stories with a grain of salt. They're so much fun, though. They really like the only... Genesis is one of the only books of the Bible that can keep up with, like, Greek mythology. It's the only one that's half as much fun. 
well. <laughs> oh, well. So, of course, you have, like, Abraham that is visited by the angels telling him that he will have... Sons. Yes. Spawn. And they are presented as these three kind of human messengers. And then an angel comes again to stay his hand. And make sure he doesn't accidentally kill one of those sons that he's wanted for a bajillion years. It wasn't an accident. He was told to do it. Yeah. Like, that is so perverse. We're going to have to talk about that story one day. Oh, I mean, it's based on, there's tons of legends like that. I know. I know there are. And they're all very sad. And then, of course, we have, like, Jacob's Ladder, where the angels are going up and down, bringing messages back and forth. You have them represent Isaiah, Ezekiel, King David, sees an angel standing between earth and heaven with a drawn sword in his hand. The angel in the New Testament, so in Christian tradition, and also, this is an Islamic tradition as well, the angel Gabriel announces the Annunciation. It's Mary's pregnancy test. Much better than an EPT. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes angels aren't the nicest. No, they've got a nasty temper, those angels. You know, in Exodus. Angels, uh, they kind of kill everybody's firstborn son. So it's not specifically stated as the angels, but tradition kind of says that it's kind of an angel of death. And then other times, you know, angels kill like 185,000 Assyrians, whenever. (laughs) They're pretty badass. Like, let's be honest. They're pretty badass, these angels. And in Islamic tradition, you also have... The angel God Gabriel Zibrael, who is the messenger to Muhammad, who helps him kind of write the Quran, brings the message mm. of the Quran to him, and does lots of other things. So throughout the Bible, angels are mentioned throughout the Bible, the Torah, through traditional Jewish text in the Quran, in lots of Christian writing, they're mentioned all over the place. But there are only th- three named angels in the christian tradition okay and those three are also named within the islamic and judaic tradition okay and so that includes gabriel okay and he's the one that's there to tell about baby jesus being born and he also tells zachariah about john the baptist yeah nice guy thanks for that he appears to david twice in christian tradition he blows the final trumpet on judgment day but that's traditional right that's not actually in the text well an angel blows the trumpet and we're just gonna like give that job to gabriel because we know the guy and he's been good for all the other stuff well it might be tied in that he does blow a trumpet in the new testament to kind of announce himself and that yeah okay jesus the lord and savior is coming etc okay and like i said he and kind of helps muhammad kind of brings the message of the quran to him and then you have Michael. John Travolta. Sweet guy. So he is kind of your warrior, soldier, angel. He is the archangel. Depending on who you ask, yes. A lot of people say he's the archangel with a big A. Okay, so he's... And then there are archangels with... Little, little A's. Okay. And so he's that warrior hero. And Daniel described as the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, Israel. Protector of Israel. Christian tradition. Protector of Catholicism in the church. Okay. So he's often weighing souls, has a big sword, armor, tunic, treading on a snake, fighting a serpent, representing Satan, bad stuff, which I'm going to counter your argument that there are three because Lucifer's named and he's an angel until he's not. He's not. (laughs) But he's an angel. Not anymore. His name means light bringer. 
He's Prometheus. Oh, that's a whole other bag of can of worms. <laughs> bag of worms. It's a bag of worms, that one. Oh, it's a bag. It's a bag full of cans of worms. Michael is mentioned in the Quran. Angel Mikael uh, is mentioned once in the Quran and many times in the Hadith, which is kind of a, a companion book. This kind of helps explain the Quran and has further stories related to it. And in that, he's known for his mercy. Interesting. Yeah, it's like completely different, which is odd because a lot of the other stuff lines up. He's charged with the care of plants and rain. This would have been very important in that area of the world. And nourishing mankind. Big responsibility. But it all comes from that area of the world. Sure, that's fine, but I'm just saying like that's a that's a high office to give someone. Yeah, it's a very important, of course. Um, and then you have the angel Raphael. Now Raphael is not in the K- King James version. Who cares about the King James version? Well, like all the Protestants in the world. <laughs> Come on, bells. <laughs> so in the Book of Tobit, which is in the Catholic Bible, well, it's like I mean, it's almost Job-like. To where is a guy, and he's really devout, and he's blind, and his wife has problems, and they have all kind of problems, and the angel Raphael appears and helps like heal the blindness, and helps you know ease their woes because they're devout people, and it's kind of parable like. It's like if you're devout, God will take care of you. So in Judaism, he's seen as a healing force again because he heals the blindness okay. that, with a fish he caught, and in Islam, he's the angel. That blows the trumpet from the Holy Rock in Jerusalem to announce the day of resurrection. And so the fourth angel, the fourth angel uh, in Judaism and Islam, they each have another one. And some people think, oh, well, it's to symbolize kind of four points of the compass. Okay. Four is usually the number. We usually go four. Good, nice, even number. Well, it's like the suits and tarot or like cardinal directions, like you said. You know, four elements. Four humors. We just, we like four. It's good. So the traditional fourth angel in Judaism is Uriel. And in some traditions, he's the angel that fights Jacob. He is listed as the fourth angel in the Gnostic Gospels, Mm -hmm. which are, again, the Gospels. That got booted. Like, didn't make the cut. And also in the Angelology of Pseudo-Dionysus, which we're so going to get there. Pseudo-Dionysus. Fake party god? Yeah, he had, like, non-alcoholic wine at his party. Fake party god. It's like when your mom's like, if you want to have a party after prom, we can have it here. You can have a grape juice bar. It's going to be so much fun. Have all the kids come over, you know? And you're like, yeah, mom, it sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. That's what he was. Since we're parsing, I'm going to parse. So in tradition, he rescues John the Baptist from Herod's massacring armies and helps Mary and Joseph after they fled to Egypt. And so he was actually struck from Catholicism. Stricken from the record. Yes. What did he do to deserve that? Well, this was done by Pope St. Zachary at the Council of Rome in 745. Okay, I've got it. Yeah, and so at this time, very worried. About this polytheistic plague upon our church. Right. There were a lot of people starting to worship other things, worship saints, worship angels, and they were worried it would turn into kind of idolatry. It kind of did. But yeah, I get what they're, I get where they were going with it, but still, you think they'd be worried about pissing the guy off. Well, so he wasn't mentioned in the Bible, and so they were like, well, he's out. Done with him. And so another angel that is considered the fourth angel in Islam, and is also a Judaistic angel, is Azrael. Azrael. And he is mentioned in the Zohar and the Holy Book of Kabbalah, 
And he's also mentioned the book of Esdras, which is an apocrypha. And he is traditionally the angel of death. Fun. So the angel of death is not mentioned by name in the Quran. As in, they don't say Azrael comes and does this. It just, he's called the angel of death. Which is really a cool title. And I don't know that I would want to be called by name if that was my title. And then, so, I mean, you have so many angels come up after this and post-biblical Judaism. You have angels like, like Metatron. Which sounds like a badass robot. Oh, it's uh, Alan Rickman. You're right. You're right. All of my angel knowledge comes from Kevin Smith's Dogma. Which is a fantastic film. One of his finest. I like that and Chasing Amy were my two favorites. I'm, I'm making every fanboy rage out right now. I feel it. <laughs> They're like, what about ball rats? So we've established that angels in tradition and in canonical text from the three major Western religions are there. Yeah. The idea exists. Yes. Yes, we know that they're there, kind of in theory, and that St. Thomas Aquinas says that they're really just kind of fancy air, <laughs> but sure. we do have, you know, accounts kind of describing angels along with the accounts of what they do. Right, so we mentioned a few brief descriptions, but two major descriptions found in the Bible are from Isaiah and Ezekiel. And these go on to really influence a lot of the ideas of what we have as what an angel looks like. Mm-hmm. So in Isaiah. They're said, they say that they're pretty ladies with halos and feathery wings. No. Oh. Uh, so yeah. About that. <laughs> Isaiah sees a vision. And he sees God sit on a big old throne. and Like a boss. Yes. And his train filled the sanctuary. And then to quote. Above him stood seraphs, each one with six wings, two to cover its face, two to cover its feet, and two for flying. They were shouting these words to each other. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. His glory fills the whole earth. That's a nice thing to say. Okay, so they've got six wings, which seems superfluous. Well, they've got use for them. Okay. So, as always in these Judaistic texts of the Old Testament, you can't see the glory of God. Oh, so they're covering their eyes with one set of wings. And then, of course, they have the wings to fly with. Because you need, you know, to be airborne. Because they're messengers and things. You've got to transport. And the other ones are covering their feet. Maybe they've got athlete's foot or a toe fungus problem. I don't know. Why are they covering their feet? Well, there's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of Is it talk or is it like... Somebody alone in a room being monastic and things needing to occupy their mind so they don't think about the gorgeous nun they saw the other day. No, it's like rabbis. Okay. married. They're fine, yeah. And so the idea is that they're, you know, covering their body for modesty. Maybe Mm. the feet could represent genitals. Okay. Not seeing that, but I'll go with you. Keep talking, rabbi. Or that they could cover their cloven feet. That's for demons. Oh, it's just our modern interpretation. So, actually, that's supported in other texts that they have cloven feet. It's really interesting. Well, it would make sense, like, if we think of the devil as having cloven feet and the devil being an angel. Right, I didn't think of that. So, in Ezekiel, we have a very different appearance of these angels. He sees a great fire, and out of it appears four creatures. A great cloud with flashing fire and brilliant light round it. In the middle, in the heart of the fire, a brilliance like that of amber. 
and in the middle what seemed to be four living creatures. They looked like this. They were a human form, but each had four faces, and each had four wings. Their legs were straight, they had hooves like calves, glittering like polished brass. Hmm. Below their wings, they had human hands on all four sides, corresponding to their four faces and four wings. As to the appearance of their faces, all four had a human face, and a lion's face to the right, and all four had a bull's face to the left, and all four had an eagle's face. Interesting. Now, another thing that they say about them is that they don't turn when they walk. Like, they don't have that sort of ergonomic swerving ability. Like, they go forward in one direction or the other, toward in the direction of one of their faces. Yes. I love that idea. Now, this is called a tetraform. Right. This is also possibly, they say, a cherubim. Possibly. That's what a lot of people talk about and a lot of people think. Now, interestingly, the cherubim are the angels who are permitted to see God. They can look at God's face and not be blinded. So the cherubim supposedly can see God's face. They're the countenance angels. So a lot of people think they can look upon God because they don't have the wings covering their face. That means that he likes them a whole bunch. And then in Revelation, they kind of repeat both descriptions mm-hmm. uh, within it. So you have to wonder where these ideas of what angels look like come from. Divine inspiration, brah. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe they were just like looking around at some cool monuments and shit. Well, so you do have just ideas of these, like you, like you mentioned, winged kind of messenger beings Throughout the world, Mm -hmm. really. In Egyptian iconography, human souls are represented as birds with human heads. They're able to fly back and forth from the tomb freely. And they're many-winged creatures. Right. So Isis, of course, is that beautiful kind of Ark of the Covenant-looking being with the arms that are outstretched and wings that seem to kind of descend from her arms and then continue on out. And then Mott is a very similar silhouette. And Mott is also the spirit of truth and principle, harmony and order, and she's a sort of shining goddess. Right, she's radiant, which is really one of the other descriptions of the angels that is used, is that they're like these radiant beings. Right, you get that keyword a lot. So in Mesopotamia, you have the Sumerians who believed in a group of winged messengers who were able to fly fast and kind of do God's bidding. They also, interestingly enough, believed in spirits that attached to each person who was a companion and helped them throughout life. So like a guardian angel. Exactly. All right. And so some of these ideas may have lended into Zoroastrianism, which is this ancient religion that eventually became the religion for the Persian Empire, they first made an appearance in recorded history about the 5th century BC. They had those ideas of messianism, heaven, hell, free will, choosing right from wrong. And they had like winged figures such as the Farashi, which were represented as a pair of wings from a central disc with a superimposed human figure. And interestingly enough, that iconography is still used in the Eastern Orthodox Church. You're right. And so they also have that idea of a central god as one of the first main religions, especially in this area. They had just almost monotheistic religion. And a lot of people say it could have inspired Judaism. So the central god, Ahura Mazda, 
communicated visions to the prophet Zarastra. He did this through these winged messengers, the Vohumana, who appeared as these giant winged creatures. And often, I'll say traditionally, angels can be of giant size. Mm -hmm. And he had further visions depicting more angels, hierarchies, and ideas including guardian angel-like spirits where each one had this kind of relationship with a human soul. It was like a guardian and role model. So in Iran, Persia, uh, large-winged figures guarding access to holy places and royal treasures. All right, and then I feel weird bringing this up in the context of angels, because as I know it, it is the root of all evil, at least in 1973. I see Pazuzu here. Tell me why Pazuzu is here. Well, he's just another winged being in their tradition. So he was, he actually was not always this evil creature. Okay. Yeah. Things seldom are always evil. And then in Hindu tradition, you also have winged intermediaries and many shamanistic traditions that are winged intermediaries. And of course, as mentioned, the Greeks had, you know, people like Hermes, which went into be the Roman tradition of mercury really as you see these ideas of what angels look like don't coincide at all except for maybe that they're like humanoid and have wings with what we think of as angels today right and definitely not what they're as they're described in the bible but those are challenging to depict although man some many of lot of said some beautiful attempts yeah so when you're looking to depict very important theological symbols and moments, you need to draw from somewhere. And so the people searching out a way to effectively portray angels had a lot to draw from. Right. And some of their inspiration is some of the stuff we talked about in these different cultures of these weaned intermediary messengers and guardians. One of the earliest depictions of a deity that might have inspired the way we think of angels is the dancing goddess. And this is around 4,000 BCE. Oh, wow. Way back. Right. Cipro Minoan and Malta culture icon. And it's kind of this kind of animistic bird goddess that has wings up above her head. And it's very primal and basic imagery. But it was brought into the Egyptian tradition. And here we see Isis and her sister goddesses. And this was from about 1800 BCE to 600 BCE. And these are winged women, and their hands extend to about the midpoint of their wings, which seem to kind of dangle from beneath them. And then other than that, they're very humanoid, and they wear garb that is traditionally worn by the rulers or royal family, at least the upper class. And then around 875 BCE, we get winged figures called the Abkala in the city of Nimrud in Assyria. And they're primarily male, and they have very impressive beards. Oh, they're fantastic sculptures. And they also have wings protruding from their back. Yes. And this is kind of the first time we're getting that imagery. Because if you look at Isis, they're extending from their arms, like almost as extensions of arms. Yeah, they have like sphinx-like qualities in a way. Yes, they they do very much. And they were always like guardians. You know, they had the famous sculptures at the British Museum. Where all the history was co-opted. Co-opted. That's a nice word. <laughs> I'm into euphemisms. And then the Greeks, around 500 BCE, begin depicting these winged victory figures. The goddess Nike, who is the spirit of victory, in addition to being 
home of Air Jordan. Co-opted by France. Yes, it was. And Nike was co-opted by everyone else. And she has beautiful, full feather, very realistic bird-like wings extended from her back. Classic, like Louvre winged victory has arms and wings on her back. Right. And then in the early Christian tradition, when the Romans are really getting into the whole monotheism thing, they start integrating winged victory into scenes that would be considered like the joyful miracles or the triumphs of, you know, Christianity as a symbol of victory. But then they begin to be understood as angels. It's interesting to point out that before the Romans really got all Christianity. All down with the Jesus. Before they accepted Jesus as their own personal Lord and Savior. (laughs) I can see Constantine like accepting the altar call, like coming up to this like Southern Baptist preacher. Hallelujah. Praise the Jesus. I'm saved. There wasn't a lot of iconography in general, but especially about angels prior to Constantine really getting on board. And then like having all of his slaves carve it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like kind of fourth century. So until about the fourth century, Christian artists had really avoided representations of angels. And they wanted to do this because they were afraid of like enforcing the idea that Christianity was a polytheistic religion. They wanted there to be one God, one God to rule them all, you know, like a ring. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. And that's right there in Colossians 2.18. So angel worship disqualifies you from the prize. What's the prize? Heaven! Oh, that was a new car. It wasn't. That's only on Oprah, not God. And angel worship was like real popular before they got Mary in there. Because people wanted some kind of fluffy meringue aspirin figure. Well, it's also, I mean, they're so depicted as messengers between mm-hmm. God and humans. It's not that crazy so, like, of a you stretch. you get in good with the messengers, so he takes your stuff first. He can first. go, yeah, yeah, he can go. I mean, it makes sense. The oldest depiction we have is from the second century in the catacombs of Priscilla. She was the wife of the consul of Rome who had converted to Christianity and been put to death for it because that's what she did back then. And in very early depictions, including this one, angels didn't have wings or halos. They were just radiant humans. Well, this one has a tunic and a polyum. A polyum? Yes. And I looked up what that was because I didn't grow up Catholic. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the modern polyum is a circular band about two inches wide, worn at the neck, breast, and shoulders, having two pendants, one hanging in the front and one behind. The pendants are about two inches wide and 12 inches long. They are weighted with small pieces of lead covered with black silk. The remainder of the polyum is made of white wool, part of which is supplied by two lambs presented annually as a tax by the Latrian Canons Regular to the chapter of St. John on the feast of St. Agnes, solemnly blessed on the high altar of that church at the pontifical mass and offered to the Pope. Now, of course, that's modern tradition. But I love it. Look at the pageantry and flair you guys have. Like, the Pope has the right to have it and wear it whenever he wants, but then he only gives it to the really cool archbishops who are on his kickball team. Oh, man, I hope I don't get picked last again. Pope Francis is such a dick. No, he's he's not. not. He's Uh, the nicest pope ever. Don't you talk about Frankie that way. Popo Benedicto never picked me. Popo Benedicto was a Benedict. Aww. Aww. He was, though. He was So so it was a sign of just, like, high status. 
Yeah, but I don't know which came first. This is a chicken egg thing for me. Like, is it this something we put out there and then the Pope took? Or is it something that the Pope wore and they put it on the angel? I don't know. Fourth century, we get the Angelus Bonus, or the good angel. And it also has no wings. Notable that at this point in history, we were only showing angels when they were very necessary to the scene. We weren't just throwing them around all willy-nilly. Not decorating your house with them. No, they were not in the bathroom. No angels in the bathroom. Or the outfield. I love that movie. God's fingernail. Only when they were needed to kind of complete the scene. And they were basically just people. But if you knew the story, you knew it was an angel. Right. Sometimes they were like doves or light or the hand of God. Yeah, we still like to stick a dove everywhere. Well, a lot of times now that represents the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Yeah. Because that's hard to depict. Flame on top of somebody's head. Okay, Catholic. I've never... What does that mean, flame on top of somebody's head? It's in the Bible. What is it? It's in your Bible, too. But we don't care. <laughs> Holy Spirit, flames in their heads. That looks uncomfortable. It is a warming, comforting fire. <laughs> Just like Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, there was also a sarcophagus of Junius Bassus around this time, and he was a Roman politician, and in it... On the sarcophagus is carved different depictions of angels, and sometimes they're human-like, such as a scene of Abraham and Isaac, Mm -hmm. but they also include winged angels. So this might be that kind of in-between state where they start to add wings onto the angels more frequently. If he was a politician, they may have just been victories. No, they could have been. And, And so it's easily confused now. Or it could have been. It could have been the time where they started to confuse. Right. And then you have a bas relief of Carthage, ivory sculpture of Michael, which is part of a diptych. Which I have the a what? A diptych. A what? It's a sort of notebook, and it's formed by the union of two tablets placed one upon another and united by rings or a hinge. These tablets were made of wood, ivory, bone, or metal. The inner surfaces had ordinarily a raised frame and were covered with wax, upon which characters were scratched by means of a stylus. So in Constantine's time, around 4th century, we start to have more depictions of angels, and especially start to include wings on these angels. Right, and that's what is notable about that sculpture of Michael. And he also has much of his familiar iconography in that depiction. Around the 5th century, as early as the 5th century, angels just kind of become eye candy. What do you mean? Like, they're just sort of attendants to the Lord. Like, anytime you're throwing Jesus around in a painting, you might put some angels. Put some pretty angels. Yeah, because... You know, your models need work, too. Well, it's a great way to show divinity. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait till we get to the pooty later. <laughs> the pooty is my favorite, like, I don't know, just throw some flying babies around. Whatever. Put them coming out of skirt. Then, mon frere, we come to the Byzantine angels. So Byzantium is that eastern split from the Catholic Church. But they still had a lot of similar traditions and fed off of each other. Right. They still had their bells. Their bells still rang. The Byzantine angel iconography was very creative. And angel art was beginning to really interpret them in new ways and sort of put them at the forefront of their images. You get this moment where they develop a way of showing this six-winged angel and these kind of beautiful fan-like plumy shapes that are very striking just on a shape level. Um, beautiful organic twists and turns. They start really trying to adapt these depictions to be a little bit more fantastical. And then they really nail down some hardcore iconography as they're going. And so in the medieval period, 
these are really the primary influences for what an angel looks like. Archangels like Michael and Gabriel were dressed to military standard, and they were inscribed with the word agios, which is holy, and they were represented this way in mosaics. And before that time, there was really no attempt to organize in a bureaucratic way or a feudal way, if you want to be historically accurate. I think that angels are only organized that way because of feudalism, but whatever. The the ranks of heavenly host. Well, so, so angels start to get an iconography. So why is iconography so important? Because it's a way for people to look at an image and instantly know who it is meant to depict. Right, so these angels would be dressed in this kind of military garb. You have certain saints always depicted with certain things so that illiterate people could recognize them. During this time, you do get kind of a separation of characters. And of course, this continues in medieval art. And Michael gets scale to weigh humans. And sometimes he's weighing them against like little demons. Mm-hmm. It's very cute. He also gets a sword and a dragon to kill. Of course. And armor, and maybe a date tree sometimes, just for fun. It had meaning. I know. And then a scarlet cross, and he tends to wear red. And then Gabriel usually wears blue or white, and he's usually got a trumpet or a lily, maybe a lantern to light the way, maybe a spear or a mirror. And he might have a banner sometimes too, but his usually has a message on it. Michael's is like a war banner, like a flag that you would carry in battle. And um, Gabriel's is usually like some text. And then you have Uriel, who has a sword and fire and usually red wings, possibly a scroll. And then you have Raphael, who has a fish. Because he used the fish to cure blindness. He still has a fish. The other ones have like swords and shit. And he has a fish. Look, St. Jerome has a lion. St. Jerome has a lion. That's awesome. Why? Because he faced the lion. I don't know. We don't have saints. (laughs) But it makes for some really cool paintings. A fish does not make a painting any better. Oh, yeah. No. Big old fish. No. It's never a big fish, Jacob. It's never a big fish. I caught a fish this big. (laughs) It was a teensy tiny little fish. And he wears like pilgrim's garb and has a walking staff with a gourd. And sometimes he gets a caduceus because he is associated with healing. Healing, exactly. Which is much cooler than a fish. So we have kind of character development during this time. All right. So we've got characters. We've got iconography. We've got winged angels and other thing you always see with we have their like robe and tunic like outfits what about their their halos well the halo is actually very important to the visual depiction and understanding of angels and the closest thing we have to a biblical reference is when moses is described as having a crown of light or rays of light when he comes down from Mount Sinai. Sometimes translated as horns. horns. Which is why you have the amazing Moses. In the Vatican. In the Vatican. Oh my gosh. With horns. The horns are perfect. You have older depictions of things like the Greek god Helios, who always has rays emanating from his head. And then Apollo kind of has a halo thing. This is sun He's god. His sun, yeah. People also speculate that there might be some relationship to laurels, which were, you know, the laurel wreath that you wear. And sometimes like the like Ra's attendants and things like that. Mm-hmm. So Egyptian crowns did look like a sun disk and were often depicted as just that circular thing. And that might have been an influence on the halo as well. So Christians were like, like the look of that. And so they picked round because round is perfect, divine, unending, holy. And it, um, you know, just has a nice look about it. 
And so this was used to denote Christ or the Lamb of God or angels and later saints. But there are a lot of really interesting variations to the halo. It's not just a circle. I did not know this. It's not just a circle. We're so much more thoughtful than that back in the day. We have the mandorla, which is an almond shape. And it's actually mentioned in the Bible as being above the heads of angels who visit Abraham. And this is used specifically for Jesus and Mary around the 5th century. So they actually had halos above their head. Mm-hmm. And huh. that, but they were almond-shaped. Okay. And then you have the cruciform halo. And this is reserved for members of the Trinity. And there's a cross within or extended beyond the circular area of the halo. And in Byzantine tradition, it includes the letters O and N for the being or I am. And this begins to be used around the 6th century. And just to let you know, this is from a wonderful art history blog that I stumbled across called Alberti's Window. And it's written by Monica Bowen. So go check that out. And then you have the square halos. Imperfect. Right. And this is used to indicate that the person is still living when the artwork is created. And it shows connections with an earth. And this was used mostly in the 8th century. And then you have the triangle halo. Trinity. Mm-hmm. And the hexagonal triangle. Uh, Halo. I've got no guess. For allegorical figures. Oh, okay. And then dotted. And this is used mainly in crusader art. And then you have the star. And this is used mostly in depictions of the Immaculate Conception. The Virgin is crowned with 12 stars in Revelation. And so is the Empress on your tarot deck if you're using a rider weight, which is very interesting to me. Is the Empress like related to the Virgin Mary? She's the mother figure. Which is, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. And then we have like this rise of realism. And so the halo needs to kind of move in perspective, which is tricky. Hmm. So the frequency of the halo kind of dips at this moment. You can see it's evident that some artists who kind of like nail the rest of it go for the halo. And it's like, oh man, so close. Shouldn't have done the halo. Damn it. Shouldn't have done the halo. Good example of that is in a painting by Giotto in his Madonna and Child altarpiece. But da Vinci decided to make halos super skinny. They're just barely there, which he was he was tasteful and economical in so much of his artwork. So it makes sense. And then Van Eyck, who is just the master of the orange and all things hyper-realistic, the finest of the Flemish. Flemish is just cows. No, it's not. It's orange. No, Van Eyck. And oranges. Jan Van Eyck was amazing. The Ghent altarpiece is just, go look at it. Pause and go Google it. Oh, we're going to, I'm going to have to put so many things on the website. Like, it's going to be an awesome image gallery. Yeah. But he made them light rays and they're really beautiful. His interpretation of halos is one of my favorites. Well, it kind of fits more with the biblical tradition. So in the West, after the Byzantine tradition is established, you have angels being depicted as wearing kind of outdated Byzantine robes. It's funny to watch because a lot of times angels fashion lags behind popular fashion just enough to make them fantastical or point to kind of an arcane connection. That angel is so last year. So two centuries ago, usually. And the Byzantine depictions of angels drew from imperial iconography. A lot of people speculate that they were influenced by the appearance of the court eunuchs who could rise to positions of authority in the empire. 
They performed ceremonial functions and served as trusted messengers. Amelia R. Brown points out legislation under Justinian indicates that many of them came from the Caucasus, having light eyes, hair, and skin, as well as comely features and fine bodies, desired by slave traders. Those castrated in childhood could develop distinctive skeletal structures and lacked full masculine musculature, body hair, or beards. As officials, they would wear a white tunic decorated with gold, Brown suggested that Byzantine artists drew consciously or not on this iconography of the court eunuch. So getting that fair, complected, androgynous imagery, Mm -hmm. possibly from eunuchs. Right. And so when this is taken down in the Byzantine era, it's transported further west and then becomes the standard. And then in the medieval period, we also get angels that are clad in brilliant color because artists are really experimenting with color in new ways. And the more senior an angel was, the more ornate and colorful their robes would be. Their wings followed suit. They would have very colorful wings. Like like their depiction's kind of peacock-like. Ibis is one I always think of. Like that brilliant red wing. Like a rosette ibis. And in Flemish art during the Middle Ages, angels were depicted as wearing robes that would denote that they were more lowly than priest. Which was... That's interesting. Reinforcing the divinity of the priest. That's really crazy. Right? Oh, during the Renaissance, we get a resurrection of these lost forms and classical themes. Ah, those Greco-Roman influence comes back with a vengeance. Neoclassical and whatnot. So we get a lot of really detailed, really ornate, almost scientific renderings of wings. We get a bucket ton of annunciations. So many annunciations. This is a very popular theme. It's one of the only things we're painting where we don't have blood, gore, and etc. Boo. Boo. And so we also have a very organized angel hierarchy that we are very interested in. And it was kind of suggested by Dante. And St. Thomas Aquinas was like really into it too. And Hildegard of Bignan, who is a religious visionary, kind of threw in some flair and we get this like literal choir of angels and then people started giving them instruments because we're incredibly literal. Yeah, they're choir. Yeah, so they start giving them instruments and those get fancy. And they're the the popular instruments of the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And those have stayed around. From the Renaissance into the Baroque period, this interest in the feathers on these wings is just perverse. The feather was to, like, the Roman school of art what the orange was to the Flemish school. Okay, we have to explain that, like, really deep track inside joke we have about that. (laughs) Okay. So, back in the day, artists would have different things in different schools that were used to show what a great artist they were. It was like the mark of your skill. So, like, if you were Flemish... You'd put an orange. An orange, because drawing a spherical orange object in 3D realistic fashion showed that you were fucking awesome. And working with that difficult color, because it is a very difficult color. Right. And, you know, a sphere as well. Mm -hmm. Lighting that correctly. Yeah. So, this was a mark of skill. And in the Roman school, it's the feather. And we are all about a feather. Look at the plumes. Look at the plumes. Go Google, like, Baroque art. So, of course, we are just, like, loving this angel thing. Because how many feathers have they got? 
all the feathers. All the feathers. Six wings. Six, six wings. wings. We don't get a lot of six-winged angels, though. You're right. As time progresses, we stop seeing those as much. Those are very medieval in depiction. Mm-hmm. And we start getting very humanoid people with very, like, scientifically birdie wings. And we, at this era, at this moment, we get the putty. A what? The putty. Oh, what? The putty. Those are the ones in the bathroom. No. Well, they are. Yes. They are, but not intentionally. They're also called the cherubs, which they're not. Cherubs are the large ones with fiery swords. Yes. But these are called the cherubs. And these are babies. And these babies are adorable. They're just like so Rubenesque. You can just tickle their little tummies. And they're everywhere. One classically depicted in the Raphael painting. Yes. Where these come from is sort of a misunderstanding of what this little guy was doing in the back of all the paintings of the Roman school, because he was originally Eros, who was originally Cupid. And this is like where we get the cute little Cupid flying around, which Cupid was never like that either. I was going to say, even when you go back to Eros, he's like a a full guy. Eros and Psyche is one of the most dark and twisted myths in the history of the world. Yes. He definitely... Is not a little baby with Psyche. But he was when they want to show Venus. They want to show Venus with the child. And so it's always that. Because he had wings, he kind of got mixed up in this whole angel thing. And people were like, meh, let's stick him around. And you get this phenomena at this time, not just of naked babies with wings, because that, that makes sense, whatever, but baby heads with wings. And this is so deeply disturbing. And they're just thrown in paintings like glitter. They're just freaking everywhere. So They're like coming out of skirts. They are. They're like floating down from buildings, kind of part of buildings, popping out of plants, everywhere. So that's fun. Floating baby heads were big during the Renaissance and Baroque period and continued to be on through the Rococo period. Rococo is Marie Antoinette. Rococo is the swing. It's ridiculous. It is opulent. It is the bridge between the Baroque, which is just too much. As hyper-realistic as possible. And dark and lighting. Oh, Baroque. Yes. Baroque is super opulent. Lots of stuff. But hyper-realistic. Larger than life. People say that there's been a, a reconnection with the Baroque period because it mimics so much of television. Like, there's such a cinematic air to it. These figures feel like they're coming out of the you know out of the painting out of the screen um, there's very moody lighting it's my favorite i love baroque art while we're here let's stop for a moment and talk about the way that people started working with angels during the baroque period they've been integrated fully in the renaissance into these scenes we see them interacting as humans would sort of silently supporting your leading ladies or gentlemen. They're there just kind of watching. Or announcing. Or announcing. But then they become pivotal players and start to have almost like tangible relationships with the character who's the central focus of the painting. And one place where you can see this, and again, I'll put these up on the site, is Caravaggio's St. Francis of Assisi painting, which is phenomenally gorgeous. Just shut up already first of all it's huge you see saint francis who's reclining in a very sublime moment it's not agony it's not bloodshed it's not pain but he's receiving a stigmata and 
he's laid on the lap of an angel who's gently supporting him and looking on like you've done it. And there's this really sweet connection and it's gorgeous, but you have this angel who's taking a vital role and actually supporting and holding him up uh, rather than just looking on. And so that's an important change. And you also begin to see some violence out of the angels for the first time in a long time. And we get some angel fights that are just mind-blowing. Epic. Epic. With the wings. I mean, nobody. And Okay, I'm going to let you in on a secret. There was a winner to the whole feather thing, and it was Caravaggio. <laughs> you think Caravaggio is the winner of everything? No, he definitely won the feather thing. That's just a fact. And so the angel wings, my God. Oh, my God. But... That's a really interesting shift. That is when we start to get these very humanized angels, which I would argue leads up to the way that people want to think about them now. That's sort of like, everyone can have one, because they just look like people. Oh, yeah, but Caravaggio's were like the prettiest person on the block. Yeah, they were. Hey, why not? And so you also have a shift with Caravaggio and his love of pretty boys, and the influence of that Byzantine tradition and maybe inspiration from the court eunuchs of these very androgynous looking angels who just become more and more feminized as time goes on. Well, I mean, tradition, because they do not have asex. They are neither male nor female. But they're definitely referred to as male in the Bible. Yes, they're masculine. In men's names as well. But through artistic interpretation and reinterpretation and wanting to look at the pretties, we start to get more feminized angels and then eventually we just start to get female angels. So that's a brief history of Western art depicting angels in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Hooray! (laughs) There are some Islamic depictions of angels as well, often as winged creatures. In Islamic tradition from at least the 14th century, you have the Barak. Obama. No myth and so this is kind of this combination of like a griffin and a sphinx and a centaur and an angel and is very popular in these like persian miniature paintings and this creature is what helps muhammad ascend to heaven but so you know we have kind of traced that idea of why we think angels look the way we do and then we have to look at why we think angels do what they do you know in order to have a guardian angel in theory you have to kind of have this hierarchy of angels yeah somebody's gotta have diaper duty that's the guardian angels yeah, i know they have the worst job in all the western religions you have different hierarchies established and there are several in judaism several in uh, christianity and several in islam and so one of the most important i guess you can say the one that's really like stands out the most it was established by pseudo dionysus fake party god who we mentioned earlier and he's a fifth century syrian monk and so at this time there was a lot of discussion and fixation on the order of the heavens. I really do think this has something to do with the importance of feudal structure at the time. I I think that this is mirroring the social order, and it has to sort of function to reinforce that. Well, and more importantly, the church structure. Arguably more importantly, you could say that the church structure only exists to reinforce the social structure. In a way, I think they kind of feed off of each other, Mm -hmm. for sure. 
So in this, he establishes three different spheres of angels. Mm-hmm. The first sphere, the top sphere. Does anybody think he was having a not pseudo Dionysus party this day? Oh yeah. And so at the top you have the seraphim. Okay. And they are the highest order of the choir of angels. And they are in Judaism sometimes referred to as the Shayat. Okay, and they are depicted in a very certain way. Are usually painted red, as seraphim means the burning ones. And as we've discussed, they have the two wings that cover their face, two covering their feet, and two flying. Of course. And it's often shown holding a flabellum, or a hanging rupidon, or a sacred fan, upon which are written the words, holy, holy, holy. And that's the hymn they're singing in the verse that I read earlier. From Isaiah, correct. And sacred fans are still used ceremonially in the divine liturgy today. And this is in the Eastern Orthodox tradition to protect the body and the blood of Christ and as a sign of honor. And we talked about the four faces the seraphim have. And interestingly enough, these different faces of the living creature seen have come to be the iconography of the four evangelists, Mm -hmm. the writers of the four gospels. And so with Matthew being the man slash angel, Mark being the lion, Luke being ox or bull, and John being an eagle. And they're often all depicted with wings. Right. And I remember the first time I went into a Catholic church and saw that, I was like, what is this? This is craziness. We just don't do that. We have craziness. It's good. I like it. So the second highest order is the cherubim. And so we talked about those some. They are man-like in appearance. They're double-winged and guardians of God's glory. They kind of symbolize God's power and mobility. In the New Testament and Revelations, they allude to celestial attendants in the apocalypse. And Catholic tradition depicts them as angels who have intimate knowledge of God and continually praise him. That is where the idea of the countenance angels comes from, like the angels that can look upon God's face. Right. And of course, they guard the Garden of Eden with a big flaming sword. So they are not putty. No, they're not. No little babies with swords. That's not recommended. Is that your professional opinion? Yes. (laughs) So they're often depicted in red, but they can also be blue, as blue is the color of heaven. And St. Thomas Aquinas thought that Satan was probably a fallen cherub. That's crazy. Fallen (laughs) putty. So much less intimidating. That's where the idea of the little baby devil comes from. It's not. It's not at all. (laughs) So next you have the thrones. And this is one group that kind of gets mixed up in different traditions. Sometimes it could be the Orphanum in Judaism. But they are pure humility, peace, and submission. And they reside in the area of the cosmos where a material form begins to take shape. The lower choir of angels need the thrones to access God. And Red so, tape. Yeah. And so in Ezekiel, whenever he's seeing all these angels, he also sees these like wheel-like beings. He says, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground besides each creature with its four faces. This is the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appearance to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. So the wheel within a wheel imagery. And that also can be seen in kind of medieval uh, paintings. As they moved, they would go in one of the four directions the creature faced. And the wheel did not change directions as the creature went. So sometimes this is thought of as another depiction of the seraphim. And sometimes it's thought of as depictions of the thrones. 
Right. And thrones are God-bearing. They bear the grace of God. And they're rare in iconography. They're barrel-colored, which means they're white with red highlights. And they're usually depicted as interlocking rings with wings protruding from each of the circles. Oh, and all four rims are full of eyes all around. That's not in the paintings. It's in the Bible. So then we come to the second sphere. And this includes the dominions, which are angels of leadership. The virtues, which are spirits of motion and control the elements, govern nature, charge of miracles, cosmos, and order. And they are similar to the Erelim in Judaism. And then you have the powers. And these are the warrior angels. And this can include angels like Chief Samael or Kamael, which are Judaistic angels, uh, both angels of darkness. Ooh, they sound awesome. Right? And then you get to the third sphere, and these are the ones that are closer to Earth. So this can include the principalities or the rulers, and these are the angels that guide and protect nations or groups of people and institutions such as the church. They kind of preside over the angels and charge them with fulfilling the divine ministry. And they normally wear a crown and carry a scepter, you know, important guys. And then you have the archangels, and some people say this is archangels with a little a. So where's Michael? He's a big A. He's like the prince of angels. He's a seraphim. Okay. Depends on who you ask. So the archangels have a unique role as God's messenger to the people at critical times in history and salvation. So this is why you have like Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel coming down and announcing all these important things. And then at the very bottom, you got angels. They're just angels. The serfs. And they're concerned with living things. And these are your messenger angels. And this also includes the idea that we kind of started the show with of guardian angels. Now, in the Jewish tradition, they totally believe everybody has a guardian angel. You know, oddly enough, all of these religions believe in guardian angels. Okay. So in order to get to guardian angels, we had to talk about like what an angel was and why we talk, why we think they look the way they do and why they act the way they do. But now let's get to that idea, that idea of guardian angels. So I was kind of surprised to see this is a something that isn't found in all three major Western religions. Does anyone else think that the angels are kind of like Scott Bakula? Well, in the <laughs> final episode of Quantum <laughs> No, but like they appear at important points in history and can take on any form. It's just, it's just Sam Beckett. No, some people think that the bartender of the last episode. Anyway. <laughs> fan theories for another day. Fan theories for another day. For those of you who don't know, I am slightly obsessed with both Scott Bakula and Quantum Leap. They are my very, very favorites. Sam may have had a come apart when we saw Scott Bakula in New Orleans a few years ago. I cried, but I didn't speak to him because he was having dinner with his family. If you're listening, Scott Bakula, you're my favorite. So as I mentioned, guardian angels are written about in major texts from all three major Western religions. So in Psalms, it mentions, No evil shall befall you, nor shall affliction come near your tent. For to his angels God has given command about you. That they guard you in all your ways, upon their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The idea of angels is just ever-present. In Catholicism, you have, in Matthew, Beware lest you scandalize any of these little ones, for their angels in heaven see the face of my father. So, little ones, children, children have angels? Guardian angels. Okay. Like in the paintings. 
Oh, right, 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 which didn't come until much, much later. Fine. And then a lot of Catholic theologians discuss angels. So, St. Jerome... Who has a lion. Who has a lion. The concept of guardian angels is in the mind of the church. He stated, How great the dignity of the soul, since each one has from his birth an angel commissioned to guard it. Talked about other theologians, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustus, all talking about guardian angels. So Pope John Paul II. JP2? Yeah. My homeboy. You know, he loved to talk about these. JP2 was all about uh, making the church more palatable to the modern audience. He was really interested in cultivating a church that would remain relatable throughout someone's lifetime. And he knew that it had to kind of modernize. And so he would pick up ideas that had become kind of folk Catholicism. Passé. Yeah, that were sort of done away with and kind of reincorporate them into the more essential fabric or catechism of the church. Yeah, so he would directly invoke guardian angels in his in his homilies. And Pope Francis... Frankie! ...even said, no one journeys alone, and no one should think that they are alone. He talked about kind of angels as like, I'm almost conscience, uh, that they're depicted as sometimes. And he said, sometimes we have the feeling that, quote, I should do this. This is not right. Be careful. This is the voice of our guardian angels. And he also said... Yeah, that sounds like Doreen Virtue. <laughs> Right. He also even said that the idea of guardian angels should not be considered a little imaginative. You know what? I'll say one thing about Frankie. Yeah. What's that? He did it his way. Oh, we're done. <laughs> Why are we done? What did I do? That was it. What? When you have the best joke, you drop the mic. <laughs> so I figured if you have the worst joke, you also drop the mic <laughs> and run away before they throw tomatoes. So, Judaism does have ideas of guardian angels. Of the three religions, it's probably the kind of weakest idea of guardian angels. Um, You know, there are those more ancient kind of traditions that are there, and like the mentioning in Psalms, etc. There are mentions of guardian angels and like the Book of Enoch, which is kind of apocryphal. And of course, the idea of the Watchers. And in the third Book of Enoch, some of these good Watchers stay around to kind of help humanity and then some modern rabbis write about the kind of idea of guardian angels as even kind of being like related to mitzvahs and good deeds and a way to kind of get your like the good deeds up to god but it's important in in judaistic tradition and teachings that you're not supposed to you know worship the angels mm-hmm. they are messengers they are only follow god's will so it's almost kind of controversial topic you'll read lots of different things from different rabbi blogs which i went to (laughs) how was that it was quite interesting and so in islam you have the hafaza and these are different angels that are kind of an equivalent to guardian angels and you have the kiriman katibin which are the recorders literally translated as honorable scribes okay and they're referred to twice in the quran stating one verse stating man does not utter any word except that with him is an observer prepared to record i don't like this idea they're writing everything down i don't want them to write it down so you got one on the right and one on the left and are they like is one keeping score of all the good things and one's keeping score of all the bad things yes rakib is keeping the good deeds and Atid is keeping the bad deeds. But hey, you got a good good thing. If you are repentant, 
Okay. They don't write it down. Oh, that's nice. It's not so bad, right? I kind of like that idea. So it's like not everything's on record. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, can this be off the record? And no, so, it can't. And that that you ask is going on the record. <laughs> you so you also have two other angels, Al Mu Akibat, and these are translated as those who follow one upon another, and they are more akin to the guardian angels. For each such person, there are angels in succession, before and behind him. They guard him by command of God. Verily, never will God change the condition of people until they change it themselves with their own souls. So their job is to kind of protect us from the evil jinn in the world. So I think the first two are almost like a tail that you have put on you, like police detail or something. Yeah, well, and they're right and left. Yeah. So you have them like taking notes and then you have the other ones who are more keeping bad things away from you. No, okay. definitely. Because the jinn are not exactly, but you can kind of think of them equivalent as kind of like demon, mm-hmm. like evil beings just trying to kind of cause chaos. Okay. That's where genie comes from. That's an episode for a different day. Oh, yes. So the idea of a guardian angel, while not in this new agey kind of idea, as you see, we've talked about, completely is not at all what they were talking about. Yes, yes. You don't get as many as you want, and they're not just there to make sure everything's okay all the time. But the idea of guardian angels is a very ancient tradition with a lot of folklore and legends around it. So interestingly enough, the idea of guardian angels and angels being seen after tragedy or when things are really dark for people is something that proliferates absolutely, completely, 100% to this day. So you have things like supposedly in the sky right before Katrina hit above Florida. They saw seven orbs in the sky that formed the shape of the cross. And some people have said they're angels and other people have said they're UFOs. But whatever. Same diff. It's funny how frequently there is a like one person's like angels and we're just like UFOs. Ah, fun. Then you have this artist went and carved into like some the surviving trees like along the Gulf Coast, these beautiful angels and this uh, wood that's been ravaged by nature. And so that's sort of beautiful. And then after the Aurora shooting, when they were holding a vigil, an angel appeared in the clouds and you can Google that image. And then, you know, after 9-11, you have this like support beam that was warped by the blast and it's really kind of incredible looking you can look it up i think it's in the 9-11 museum now actually and it has this weird melting that occurred inside the beam and it's very matrixy uh, i mean like matrixing like seeing a face it really has this very hyper realistic looking face that looks like some sort of digital effect that's been applied to it but apparently it's just in the way it melted and people were like, ah, it's an angel, obviously. Yeah, but then people saw angels at the site as well. Well, Lily Leonardi, who was a former FBI agent, was sent out to the crash site of Flight 93. She claims that she saw angels guarding the site. And she only revealed this two years after the fact while she was suffering with PTSD. And she didn't tell anyone of her visions at the time. See that famous picture of the like spotlight coming up from the the tower's site, uh, the kind of silhouette of the angel in it. Right, and he's the man who took that. His name was Rich McCormick, and it was taken around September 11th of 2016. And he took it from the New Jersey side 
looking out toward the towers. And he said when he saw it, he thought it was very clearly Jesus, not an angel, which I thought was super interesting. You know, the Chilean miners said that they saw a white butterfly that prevented them from continuing on and being crushed by the collapse. And they assumed that that was an angel. So the idea of seeing angels at important historical moments is not just a late 20th, 21st century, like last 20, 30 years idea. Right. It goes back as far as like the Great Fire in London in 1666. So no photographic evidence from that one. No, but famous photos were taken during World War One and Two. Like during 1914, there was an, a photograph of the Angel of the Thames and during the Blitz in 1940. So this is a figure that appears during those moments. Again, could just be Scott Bakula. And this leads us to our true legend that we're going to discuss today. You thought we might be just talking about angels, but no, we've got a legend. We've got a legend. We've got a legend to talk about. Don't you worry. We can start the episode now. Yes, we're doing it different. <laughs> The Angels of Mons. Mons? Mons. What's a Mons? Mons is a place where they fought some stuff in France-ish. Fought some stuff. Yeah. Thank you for your specifics. <laughs> in World War I. Who fought some stuff? The British. Fought what? The Germans. Okay. The Prussians. Prussians. Do you want me to do my Mean Girls synopsis of World War I again? Because I will. No. Okay. So on August 23rd of 1914, the British attempted to hold the lines at mons Canal in France against the advancing German first. They were forced to retreat due to greater strength of the Germans and the sudden retreat of the French fifth, which ex- exposed the British right flank. And this retreat lasted two weeks. Holy shit. And it's kind of a clusterfuck. So on April 24th of 1915... An account of the Angel of Mons is published in the British Spiritualist magazine, and many, many more accounts followed that. So there was an angel in this battle? Apparently. So I'm going to read to you an account from the Occult Review. At that moment, said the writer, the whole top edge of the quarry was lined by angels who were seen by all the soldiers and the Germans as well. The Germans suddenly stopped. Hold on. It's British. At that moment, said the writer, the whole top edge of the quarry was lined by angels who were seen by all the soldiers and the Germans as well. The Germans suddenly stopped and turned round and galloped away at top speed. When talking to a German prisoner afterward, the man asked who was the officer on the great white horse who led them, for although he was such a conspicuous figure, they had none of them been able to hit him. And here's another account. He looked at me with bright and courageous eyes and asked me for a picture or a medal, he did not care which, of St. George. And I asked him if he was Catholic, and he said no, he was a Wesleyan Methodist. And he wanted a picture or a medal of St. George because he'd seen him on a white horse leading the British at Vitry-le-Francois, where the Allies turned. There was an RFA man, wounded in the leg, sitting beside him on the floor, and he saw my look of amazement, and hastened in. It's true, sister, he said, we all saw it. First there was a sort of yellow mist sort of rising before the Germans as they come to the top of the hill. More like a solid wall, they did, springing out of the earth, just solid, no end to them. I just give up, no use in fighting the whole German race, thinks I. It's all up to us. The next minute comes, and this funny cloud of light, and when it clears off, there's a tall man with yellow hair and golden armour on a white horse holding his sword up, and his mouth open, 
as if he's saying, come on, boys, I'll put the kibosh on the devils. Sort of, this is my picnic expression. Then, before you could say knife, the Germans turned, and we were after them, fighting like 90. We all had a few scores to settle, sister, and we fair settled them. Nice. So these are kind of secondhand account stories. Mm-hmm. Friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. One supposedly from a nurse who is ministering to anonymous British soldiers. Can't say their name. Didn't catch it. And the other one is a woman who ran into some men who were soldiers. Of course. And took down their accounts, but not their names. And so these stories start to spread, and more and more people come out describing these white, divine-like angels that come and protect the British and allow them to retreat. And this became an incredibly popular story. Everybody knew this story in Britain. It even became like a rallying cry. You know, a sign that God and divine providence was on the British side of things. Right, but even at that time, in places where people claim to be like reputable investigators of psychical or occult phenomena, such as the Occult Review, you have this kind of interesting skepticism creeping in. For example, from the Occult Review, the abnormal conditions induced by the intense strain of long marches enforced by the rearguard fighting is made evident by a curious passage which appears recently published work entitled The Crucible by Mabel Collins. She cites a letter from a young officer who was killed immediately afterwards who says, I had the most amazing hallucinations marching at night, so I was fast asleep, I think. Everyone was reeling about the road and seeing things. And again on the following night, he adds, I saw all sorts of things, enormous men walking toward me and lights and chairs and things in the road. And then they go on to discuss that, you know, the French people are reporting seeing Joan of Arc. Well, of course. I mean, she's got to come help, too. And write a little bit about, you know, how we see what we want to see and what we expect to see. He says that the gods of ancient days, according to classical story, became visible to the heroes whose causes they espoused in the guise of mortal men. The radiant forms of the spiritual hierarchies can be made manifest only to the mortal eye in a form in which the beholder can interpret. The spirit champion of the British arms inevitably takes the form of St. George. He comes in the spirit and power of St. George to do St. George's work, and thus the British soldier interprets the spiritual leader in terms of the ancient tradition of his race. All of Britain is on board. St. George is on our side. The angels are on our side. God is on our side. But don't worry, we have the Society Psychical Research on the case. When weren't they on the case, Jacob? When weren't they on the case? So we've mentioned the Society for Psychical Research on several episodes, and they were the nemesis, that's the new plural I've invented, of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the divine cause of spiritualism. Harry Houdini was among their ranks, as was William James, and several other key Important historical figures that we have come to know and love throughout the course of recording this podcast for you guys. They are our little totems, our little spirit animals. We love them so. And so when we found out that the Journal for Psychical Research had put together an expose on the Angel of Minds, we were just giddy. Jazzed. Jazzed. And so in December of 1915, 
they published the account called An Inquiry Concerning the Angel of Mons. So it tracks the legend as it's grown. And it says that the story is from Miss M, who got the story from her friends who were soldiers. So they wrote to her and asked if she could give the names of her friends who were soldiers. And she said that she could not, as the story was quite anonymous. Quite anonymous. Quite anonymous. So stories were recorded from the soldiers that were not there. Mr. Hazelhurst, who was the editor of the Daily Mirror at the time, interviewed a certain private who said that he'd been there for the entire battle and offered a sworn statement. Signed an affidavit. Yep. Saying that he saw the angels. And so just just to make sure because of journalistic integrity, which apparently was a thing, he contacted the regiment and said, where was this man exactly? We want to know his whereabouts so we can write more about it. And Mr. Hazelhurst concluded, normally a sworn statement, enough evidence to go to print with. Apparently, that is not the case in this instance. So he was not there. He'd been sent home sick long before the battle. And that was not the only incident like that. So interestingly, they do record another story that is a divergent account of some sort of supernatural goings on as the men were in retreat from Mons. And that's detailed in the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research from December 1915. On the night of the 20... Oh, well done. Gotta be British. On the night of the 27th, I was riding along the column with two other officers. We'd been talking and doing our best to keep from falling asleep on our horses. As we rode along, I became conscious of the fact that in the fields on both sides of the road, along which we were marching, I could see a very large body of horsemen. The horsemen had the appearance of squadrons of cavalry, and they seemed to be riding across the field and going in the same direction as we were going and keeping level with us. I did not say a word about it at first, but I watched them for about twenty minutes. The other two officers had stopped talking. At last, one of them asked me if I saw anything in the fields, and then I told him what I'd seen. The third officer confessed that he too had been watching these horsemen for the past twenty minutes. So convinced were we that they were real cavalry, that at the next halt, one of our officers took a party of men out to do reconnaissance and found no one there. The night grew darker, and we saw them no more. The same phenomenon was seen by many men in our column, and of course, we were all dog-tired and overtaxed. But it is an extraordinary thing that the same phenomenon should be witnessed by so many different people. I myself am absolutely convinced that I saw these horsemen, and I feel sure that they did not exist only in my imagination. So we have someone, this is actually the second kind of account, where they're like, this might just be, we're just dog-tired, stressed, Running from Prussians trying to kill us, and we just saw things. Hallucinations. I mean, they were going like, they were getting two hours sleep a night under some of the most stressful conditions imaginable. But he says that he's actually sure that they did not exist only in his imagination, but he knows they weren't there. It's a great just juxtaposition. It's that cognitive dissonance. And it is interesting that they all saw the same thing. And he says that the man asked him if he saw anything in the fields, not told him that he saw horsemen. It's interesting, but the researchers also start to notice that this story has some similarities to something that was published just a little bit prior to the first publication of these tales of the angels of Mons. Right. Now, this story with the cavalry marching alongside... This does not bear the same resemblance and also has a source, a human person who says it, which is a striking departure from the more angelic accounts, the more involved angels. So The Bowman was a short story. It was published in August 1915 by Arthur Macon. So in his 
short story, he writes about the retreat from Mons, and he describes St. George coming to the aid of the British and helping them escape the advancing Prussian army and getting away unscathed by divine intervention. Right, they're able to call up soldiers from the Battle of Agincourt. So epic. Sounds like very Lord of the Ringsy. But those are the bowmen of the title. He writes an introduction to a reprint of his own work when it's put together as a small book with a few other short stories that he's written. And he says some very interesting things about the new life that his story has taken on. He says, On the last Sunday of last August, there were terrible things to be read on that hot Sunday morning between meat and mass. And I saw the awful account of the retreat from Mons. I seemed to see a furnace of torment and death and agony and terror, seven times heated in the midst of this burning, was the British army, in ashes yet triumphant, martyred, and forever glorious. So I saw the men with a shining about them. So he kind of perceived them that way because he perceived them as martyrs for the British cause. It's sort of having that, you know... Radiant mm-hmm. light. Originally, he wanted to write about fallen soldiers going to, like, a big heavenly pub party thing and, like, drinking, like, heroes. How wonderfully British and Viking, like. I know, but he says, Popular religion has long determined that jollity is wicked, so I settled for writing The Bowman. It's based on multiple accounts and rumors of divine intervention. And so they're heavenly warriors, not explicitly angels. All ages and nations have cherished the thought that spiritual hosts may come to the help of earthly arms, that gods and heroes and saints have descended from their high, immortal places to fight for their worshippers. And he said he was thinking about Kipling's story of a ghostly Indian regiment and kind of that medievalism that he said was always rattling around his brain. And he came up with this idea for the story. And so it was published in the papers, Mm -hmm. as most short stories were at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But it didn't say it was fiction. Not explicitly. And so a few days after publication, he was contacted by an editor for the Occult Review and wanted to know if the story had any foundation in fact. And I said, no, of course it doesn't. That's silly. And then someone from The Light, kind of a religious publication, contacted him and said, do you have providence for these sources? And he's like, no, because I made it up. And he was very sure that he'd stifled any... Bowman mythos at the hour of its birth, in direct quote. But his editor gave permission for the story to be reprinted in church papers, and then he was contacted and asked to state his exact authorities for the story, and he said there were none, and the priest said, oh, sir, you must be mistaken. <laughs> silly man. Of course this is real. No, no, I made it up. No, it's silly. It's silly because it's real. Don't say you made it up. <laughs> He says, it began to dawn on me that if I had failed in the art of letters, I had succeeded unwittingly in the art of deceit. And around April of the following year, he began to hear versions of his story told as truth. And there were obvious links to his story, such as the appearance of St. George and the Prussians being discovered with no wounds on them and mention of a vegetarian restaurant. There were vegetarian restaurants? This is full of fun facts. I didn't know that. You know, in a story, like, one of the guys thinks of St. George from, like, the plates at a vegetarian restaurant that he goes to and thinks to call on him. And so, eventually, the bowman aspect of it was dropped completely. There were no more bowmen and no more arrows. And he says that one can say the entire affair is a psychological phenomenon 
of considerable interest, fairly comparable with the Great Russian Delusion of last August and September. That was whenever the Russians saw a ghost of General Skobolevin in a white uniform riding a white horse that appeared while they were in imminent danger. And they also had visions of the Virgin Mary. Right, and she was pointing to the west, and the next day they had a great victory, a little bit to the west of where they'd been. Sort of love the way that Megan uh, ends his introduction. He says, it's foolish enough, it is foolish enough for a man to say, I'm sure the story is a lie because the supernatural element enters into it. Here indeed we have a maggot writhing in the midst of corrupted awful, denying the existence of the sun. But if this fellow be a fool as he is, equally foolish is he who says the tale that has anything of the supernatural in it is true, and the less evidence the better. And I'm afraid this tends to be the attitude of many who call themselves a cultist. Yeah, so it's so interesting that this legend passes around your classic urban legend, friend of a friend stories. And he even talks about that. He says this providence of the story is such someone unknown has talked to a nurse unnamed who's talked to a soldier anonymous who's seen angels exactly which he's literally describing how urban legends work exactly and i think this is one of the first times we really have it documented from beginning to end right you have the very front the very very this is the origin and this is how it is transmitted And people are sort of marveling over it. Like, can you believe this took on a life of its own? Like, that's something the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research actually mentions. It's like, this is a really interesting study and rumor and how things are spread. And they're talking about urban legend transmission. And they don't know it. And it's beautiful. And it just makes me so happy. (laughs) No, it's fantastic. And what's so interesting is the story continues to be told. You can find it all over the place as... Fact. The, fact. The Angel of Mons happened. This is the supernatural occurrence. You can even when, find photos that are like ghost photos, like double exposures with people going, look at it. Look at the angel. When it is extremely well documented, the providence mm-hmm. of the urban legend. Yes. But no one wants, it's so much more fun to believe in angels. But it does continue to come up. So in 2001, the British newspaper, the Sunday Times, published a story claiming that a World War I veteran, William Doge, had film evidence of the angel in Mons. No way! And that footage had been found in a trunk in an antique shop close to where Arthur Macon had lived. Oh, this sounds intriguing. Reported that Marlon Brando had offered a hefty sum for the footage. He made him an offer they couldn't refuse. They couldn't refuse it. Aww. To create a movie about the angel of Mons. And then they found out it was all a big fat lie. Aww. And so it became the subject of the BBC documentary, The Making of an Urban Myth. Which is what it is. An urban myth, also known as an urban legend. So how much fun is that? I love it. Yay! So this is an idea of the kind of archangels, the bigger angels, coming in these big, great moments. Right. Like, to do God's divine work. like Very Old Testament-y. But we still had that idea of the personal guardian angel. So, yes. So, if you are George and you have just seen Mr. Potter walk away with your $8,000. Bastard. Bastard. And you feel like life is not worth living anymore. This is your Clarence moment. Where is Clarence? Where is Clarence in all of this? That's a great question. Where are our guardian angels. You know, some traditions and some theologians and even Pope Francis 
talk about guardian angels like it's our conscience. Okay, so our Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, like it's telling us the right thing to do or what's wrong and trying to lead us in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings us to the idea that Freud's BFF, Jung. 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 I've always thought Carl Jung was a little hot. Uh, You have weird taste. It makes makes me very insecure. I kind of do, though. Great. And so so Jungian Jungian psychology has this very important element. We talked about him and his ideas a lot in the Blood into Ink episode where he looks a lot at personality and he looks at how our ancient myths and traditions really are a great way to look at the ideas of how our personalities develop. Right. And so he talks about archetypes. And so... Archetypes are this like highly developed element of our collective unconscious. And so since they're unconscious, the existence can only be deduced kind of indirectly by looking at behavior, images, art, myths, religions, or dreams. And this is one reason that the tarot has any validity or footing um, that I find it so interesting is because it really does rely on these very ancient archetypes and these stories that just have so much power to us personally yeah he saw them as like this universal archaic pattern it's a language no it is and it's a way to look at our kind of psychic unconsciousness and sometimes these ideas are kind of inherited potentials which are actualized when they enter consciousness as images are manifest in behavior or or interactions with the outside world. So in one idea, they are autonomous and hidden forms, which are transformed once they enter consciousness and are given particular expression by individuals in their culture. Okay, so what are some examples of archetypes? We can have a lot of different things. You can have the mother archetype, which is a very caring, doting, nurturing nurturing figure. You can have the angel of destruction, which is one that just kind of is very, it can be a negative and positive kind of figure in your life. Okay. Well, like since I've been on the tarot this episode, apparently, like you can think through, you have like the hermit, which is like the wise old man, the teacher. Yes. The wise elder is definitely one of them. So... You know, this kind of brings me to the idea of how can we kind of create our own angels? That new age idea of, oh, well, you can just wish them upon ourselves. You can have as many as you want. Yeah, or the Jungian idea of them being part of your unconscious that can come about and become part of your consciousness as they kind of come forward. So I would say guardian is definitely an archetype. It is. It is, for sure. And you can see this kind of that caretaker. And there's no, like, definitive list of archetypes. And they all kind of go back and forth. Right. And they're dictated by culture. Right. And so one way that we might be able to kind of create our own angels is in a condition called dissociative identity disorder. Multiple personality disorder? That's the old term for it. Like Sally Field? That is a terrible movie. (laughs) But I like her. I really like her. So in dissociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder, you have alters. And so these are your dissociated parts. And so this is how a person becomes kind of a multiple 
as the people with dissociative identity disorder feel that they have separate identities. These alters can take over control of the person's body or behavior at various times. Each can function completely independently of the other, but they also can communicate with each other in some cases. Right, but usually not with the main personality, correct? Some cases they can, some not. Yeah. Okay, so this this is playing fast and loose. Like, there are no hard and fast rules. No, I mean, some people even say this doesn't exist. So all these alters together make up the person's whole personality. But alters usually develop from a severely traumatic event that fractures the psyche, okay. fractures the personality, the consciousness, whatever kind of terminology you want to use. So there's usually, like, one big inciting incident, or can it be, like exposure to extreme conditions over time usually one or several really big incidents a lot of times it's child abuse Mm -hmm. sexual molestation things like that okay like stuff that happens in childhood frequently okay so people can refer to alters as many different things they can be parts inside aspects facets ways of being voices multiple cells ages of me people persons individuals spirits demons other and so alters can take on any kind of characteristic i mean just name it ages of people yep like grown up and child or like different like a man can have a lady alter yep completely different attitude or personality yeah and they can even have different memories associated with them i mean they can be Literally anything. An interesting thing is that you can even have different psychobiological components. So like looking at neuroimaging testing, they can have different fMRI imaging, right? And like even like diabetics, they can have different blood sugar control. (laughs) That is insane. Oh, no, that's 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 lies. Shows how important the brain is. Yeah. You know, that everything is in our brain. The Egyptians threw the brain away. So the DSM-4 stated that the number of identities can range from two to more than a hundred. No way. And adult women averaged about 15 or more alters and men about eight. Men just couldn't commit to that many relationships. too many. (laughs) Too many. And so there are lots of different types of alter personalities. Some of the common ones including... Your apparently normal parts, which could be considered kind of the host or your kind of main personality. Ooh, I like that term. It's very sci-fi. Yeah. You can have emotional parts. So, so these like one that comes out when you're sad, one that comes out when you're stressed or like that? Well, they kind of hold the traumatic memories. Okay, so you have like one guy who's in charge of that. Yes. Some of these parts can include like baby or child alters. They can even be nonverbal. Interesting. Yeah, and some of the people think could be associated with that time that the trauma occurred. Some less common ones being like animal alters, fragments, non-human alters. What's a fragment? So it's a piece where it's not a whole personality. It's not like a whole being. Is it like sauce? Like, if the other pieces are, like, parts of a meal, is that, like, sauce? Is it, like, you wouldn't eat just that? That's the weirdest analogy I've ever I'm heard. sorry. I'm not responsible for how my brain works. Talk to my altars. Can you please put a different altar on? <laughs> Squirrel altar is here for the remainder of the episode. Oh, fantastic. 
You can even have like dead altars. What does that mean? Okay, I'm sorry. Squirrel altar must go. I need to know more about the dead altar. What's a dead altar? So this can be another emotional part, and that is hidden from the rest of the system. This is something that is sometimes brought up during psychoanalysis. So often this is the memory of a trauma in which they felt they were being killed. So a child who survives a near-death experience can develop a dead altar to contain this experience, kind of trying to banish them away. So this is like the mad woman in the attic altar? And a huge facet of dissociative identity disorder are the protector altars. Okay, the guardians? Yes. And so they try to manage the rage and anger and try to avoid feeling feelings of hurt, fear, or shame. They focus on perceived threats and find dependence, emotional needs, and close relationships and attachments as threatening problems. Interesting. Well, so you think of what caused this. So it could be something like an abusive uncle. It's just a random thing. And it's like, oh, this close relationship caused this problem. Therefore, I must extricate myself from all future close relationships and protect my charges, who are my other altars. Yes. And so there are three main types of protector altars. You have that fighting part. Mm -hmm. And they can be defensive, often use like verbal aggression. They act out towards like a therapist. So that's like your Michael. Right. They're like tough. It's your Michael. Yeah, they've got bravado. Yeah, they're kind of your Michael. You also have your caretakers, which kind of help manage and care for the other altars. It's very Raphael. Yeah, sometimes external people. Those are the ones that'll come and like take care of the kids and things like that. A lot of times they lack awareness of like self care there. They are completely outwardly focused. Outward, yes. And so they can like wear out really easily and then have to be kind of replaced by one of the other altars. In this kind of, I kind of put this in there pers- myself, but you have these kind of gatekeeper altars sometimes that can keep the traumatized altars, such as like the kid altars or the dead altars or the different emotional parts, away from appearing. So they kind of hold back these memories and they have control over them. I'm going to go ahead and say that's a Gabriel figure. Well, no, I mean, like, the, the gatekeeper, the, like, one who's in charge of, like, monitoring when emo- uh, when important information is given out or who's allowed to speak. It's your, it's your voice. It's your mouthpiece. It's the, the manager. And so the third type of protector altar is actually something called a persecutor. Okay. And that could be a very, it's a Uriel. So this persecutor altar acts in harmful ways but you have that fighting altar that's very like external mm-hmm. like fight off anybody that's trying to like talk to them not wanting to talk to the therapist not wanting to integrate mm-hmm. um, which is the term used trying to get all those personalities combined together this one's very inwardly focused okay and so the persecutor acts in harmful ways, but there's like this protective logic there. They're kind of misguided protectors. So this is like, I would say, a very Uriel angel, like the one that's fighting Jacob on the ladder, things like that. Like he's, he's like, seems harmful, but he's got a plan. He's got a plan. They usually begin life as protectors and children. And for some reason, turn on the host. So you don't see these persecutors in childhood. You see them later in life, often in 
adolescence. So some of it could be related to the changes one goes through in adolescence and seeking more sociability. Okay. Seeking more relationships. Seeking possible physical and sexual relationships. And the other one's like, no, stop, that hurt us. Exactly. And so switches from being a protected to more persecutory. Why would you do this to us? Yeah, and sometimes this persecutory alter can even kind of identify with the aggressor. It can identify with real life, not in the person abuser. Like the person who caused the trauma. Yeah, it's kind of this masochistic turning inward of expressions. That is so awful. I cannot imagine what that would be like to have a part of yourself that like identifies with the person who hurt you more than you. Right, but it like splits off this rage. Okay. And it splits off these negative feelings, which is the whole point of someone that has dissociative identity disorder is to take this terrible incident and be able to fracture it off. So will the host ever experience like negative feelings toward this altar? Like, do they fight? Oh, yeah, they can. Okay. If they're aware of each other. It's interesting. But sometimes they're not aware of each other. So these kind of persecutory altars can sometimes like leave negative notes around or like cause self harm or even be like suicidal or homicidal and have these kind oh. of ideas that the main altar or the other altars can possibly not know about. This is really hard to fathom. It's a really interesting idea. You know, I recently listened to an episode of Here Be Monsters, which I highly recommend that podcast. And it is completely 100% just a guy with DID talking. Like, they gave him a recorder for an extended period of time. And you can say he, she, because that person has different altars. But the different altars speak, and they kind of talk about their things. And it is extremely interesting. Highly recommend it. Really good case, other than, like, the ones I've seen in training, you know, which were also very interesting. So, sometimes you can have altars that are non-human. Meaning they are animals. Anything. Dragons. Well, so they, I read an amazing case study that I'm so going to save for another day about a shamanistic, like, Native American healer that had numerous multiple personalities that he used in his different healing. And they were able to kind of like integrate the different personalities, but they were still present and he was still able to use them. Oh, so good. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. (laughs) One day I'll figure some way to use it. But it can also be, you know, we've talked a little bit about dissociation and demonic possession Mm, in the exorcist episode way back. (laughs) It's a good one. Go check it out. It is really fun. I I assume I haven't listened to it in a very long time. So you can't have these demonic altars, but they can also be animals. They can be robots. Oh, I I want to date a one. Well, if you think about it, that's like it so fits with everything. Mm -hmm. No emotion, complete logic, data, Vulcan-like being. Oh my god, Star Trek was so about one person with DID. It's all in Kirk's head. Yes. No, it's all in that that guy with the red shirt's head. Yes, absolutely solved it. This is my Klingon war personality. And Riker's just here. But sometimes these protective, persecutory altars can take on a constructive form whenever 
kind of appropriated well and integrated well by the therapist. Okay. So there's a case study in Kentucky of a 35-year-old rural white female. This is from 1977, published by Lamore. She had had seven suicide attempts, and after admission under hypnotic interview, she revealed four alters. Hmm. And so the first one was Faith, which was the primary personality. She was kind, loving, helpful. She had difficulty in expressing anger and dealing with criticism. She was sometimes called Little Angel by Alicia, another alter, who was more of a satanic agent. She claimed control of most of Faith's psychological functioning. She had very assaultive and destructive behavior. So as Little Angel said with sarcasm, I assume? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then you had another personality that was called Alicia Faith. Which was a combination. Kind of. She was had this like peripheral awareness of Alicia, no knowledge of the other personalities. Not even Faith, but it was her name. Right. It was odd. And then another personality came about later, and that was one known as Guardian Angel. Interesting. And she was the protector of faith. And it actually made its appearance after her grandfather died. It's very interesting. So maybe she kind of ran with the idea that when people die, they start looking out after you and things. Well, I just I mean her protector took on that took on that myth that we have. Or she lost her real world protector. True, that's a and good idea. And needed to replace too. it. Yeah. With a mythological one, you mm-hmm. know, one that she grew up hearing about. And there's another case study that I want to go through that's such so interesting. Okay. About a guy that kind of has this dissociative disorder. This happened in Jerusalem. Interesting. And so Il Ezra was a twenty four year old married man who had been a Jewish penitent for two years. He was brought by his brother to the clinic, the psych clinic. Mm-hmm. Because of bizarre behavior. Define bizarre behavior. So during the previous six months, while Ezra had been immersed in studying the Zohar. That's Kabbalah. Right. It's the Kabbalistic book we mentioned previously. Uh, It's a key mystical Jewish text. He started hearing voices. Jewish mysticism's heavy. It'll make you hear voices. (laughs) We'd have dreams in which his late father appeared as this threatening black apparition. He also began frequently fasting. He'd visit the graves of Zadokim Jewish saints. He would ritually light candles on these graves and in the house. And all these symptoms and practices became more intense four months prior to his admittance to the clinic. And this was after the birth of his first child. So, so when he was asked to assume the father role. So nine years prior, his father had asked him to bring him a glass of water and stay by his side. He didn't feel well. And Ezra who was young at the time, refused to stay with him. And the next morning, the father was found dead. Okay, so Jewish guilt. Oh, yeah. So he was guilty. He was depressed. He started using drugs. And he finally cleaned up and, like, fully dedicated himself to Judaism and to studying. So he began praying for a child to name after his father. So after he had a girl, that's when the voices really began to escalate. Because he couldn't name the girl after his father? This is one more element of the guilt. Oh, okay. And this is when the voices began to tell him. Voice was an angel that had come to punish him for the neglect that had led to the death of his father. He must fast, abstain from sex, 
wear old tattered clothes, pray more, visit graves, be more penitent, and this would bring forgiveness. So when he appeared at the clinic, he was unkempt, he was partially disoriented, he was depressed, but his formal thought processing was intact. Okay. So reasonable. So his brother that brought him in was a rabbi. And they first started discussing Jewish law that forbids mourning a dead relative for longer than a year. That's handy. They asked Ezra to take an important step towards completion of his unresolved mourning by writing a letter to his father in which he asked for forgiveness. In it, he wrote, Father, I just want to ask for your forgiveness and pardon. I know that I am to blame for your death, but I ask forgiveness. I do not know that this is how it would turn out. I want to see you alive, but only say I forgive you. Until I see you alive, I will not believe that you have forgiven me. I have an angel that helps me to afflict myself. Please appear to me. I do not want to be reincarnated as a stone, which was a threat the angel gave him. And therefore I cry the whole night. I wait for the angel to teach me mystical secrets of the upper spiritual world. Then I will know that you've forgiven me. Reincarnated as a stone is terrible because you can never get out of it. You're a stone for eternity. Right? It's a really bad threat. The therapist, of course, mentioned that a personal angel should be protective rather than punitive. Right. It's, it's helping me afflict myself. What interesting language. Uh, so they were trying to get Ezra to find out his name. The angel's name? Yes. And he was unable to get it. But he said that he belonged to the inner circle of the angel Raziel, who's an important angel and connected to the mysteries of God. So if you've ever like boredom Googled any kind of meditation or spirit guidey stuff, one of the key things they tell you is any entity that will not tell you its name is bad news. Don't hang out. That's not your bro. Run away. Don't be hanging out with people who won't tell you their name. Seems like he could have benefited from a little downtime toilet Googling. The only time that's ever been the case. So Ezra added that he summoned his angel by lighting eight candles aligned in a specific geometric form and by reading a text from the mystical tract, The Book of the Angel Raziel. That's also how you summon demons. Right. So the book is a collection of Jewish mystical, cosmological, and magical material first printed in 1701. And co-opted by the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was the original home of one Aleister Crowley. Wonderful. Just saying. So the therapist and the brother were able to convince him to kind of make some aesthetic improvements, like wear some normal clothes, wash yourself, thinking that, you know, start on the outside, work in. And the angel responded to that by making his punishment harsher. This angel does not sound like his bro. So the therapist realized that they have to confront this angel directly. And he spoke with the brother about possibly summoning the angel so that they could have a chat. That's actually a pretty common technique. Shockingly. Very controversial, though. Yes, but it's extremely it's something people will do like if you think you're possessed or like have an imaginary friend with a kid who won't go away, things like that, like a destructive imaginary friend, they'll try to talk to him. Or if you have any kind of entity, if you think you're haunted or possessed or anything like that, people will like interact with it, different therapists in a mental health capacity. Oh yeah, it's just it's so dangerous cuz you can really screw up. 
Speaking of. <laughs> oh, good. So the brother, who is a rabbi, mm-hmm. super excited about this idea. He's like, yes, we can form a layman's court of three mm. in Judaistic tradition. We can ask the angel to leave. Cool. And the therapist is like, not what I meant. I wanted to make him a constructive force. An ally. And make him more of a... Guardian angel. Exactly. I'm on board with the therapist. So the psychologist talks about this patient's personal angel and thinks that it's related to these Jewish mystical phenomenon of the Majid and may have been inspired by it. So this literally means one who relates. And that's from Samuel. It is an angel or a supernatural spirit that in mysterious ways conveys teachings to scholars worthy of such communications, passes secrets to Kabbalists when he is asleep or awake. They can even speak through the student's mouth or induce automatic writing. And so this is what he was saying. He's like, I'm waiting for this angel to bring this to me. These okay, mystical sure. teachings. Werbelowski, who's written about this phenomenon before, compared it to a dissociative state. The existence of two personalities side by side occurring when the person hears or sees an angel. So they're hallucinating the angel's presence. And like so, Tyler Durden. Yeah, kind of the same thing. He's a bad angel. Whatevs. This guy doesn't sound too great either. This is Jewish fight club. So they decide to summon the angel. So Ezra arrives, brother locks the doors, turns off the lights, closes the windows. So Ezra sets up the candles in the forms of an eight-stem candelabrum. After he lights them, the therapist and the brother ceremonially stated that a Jewish court of three was formally constituted. The brother led the ritual and read from the book of the angel Raziel, which is what the patient used to summon the angel. During the reading, Ezra spontaneously began swaying moving his body and head in an increasingly rhythmic, vigorous manner while adding his own ecstatic sing-song of a two-syllable phrase with increasing loudness and force. What was it? It didn't say. I thought that too. They don't want you summoning angels. No. And then he entered like this trance-like state and suddenly became very quiet and told them that the angel was present. The atmosphere in the room was charged and thick. Interesting. The brother was tense. The therapist noticed the patient had become vague and distant. So the brother just suddenly goes, Angel, you have to go away. Leave my brother alone and never come back. (gasps) The nerve of that guy. I know. I don't know if that's the right way to use that word at all. (laughs) You probably just offended somebody. I'm sorry. Fine. I'll be penitent. The evil eye is coming for you. No! Ezra was completely taken aback by this and because he was still ambivalent towards the angel he didn't think he was a good angel or bad angel he just kind of saw him he as thought this... he was just delivering the message exactly and so the therapist quickly freaked out yeah he was pissed and quickly took control kind of explained to him that from then on the angel had no right to disturb ezra because the angel belonged to another realm and then the brother, tense and emotional, told Ezra to blow out the candles in one breath, thereby ending the ritual. Ezra did so, and the court declared that Ezra was now a free man under his own control. So after this, Ezra began to eat more normally. He resumed sexual relations with his wife. Good for Ezra. And began to play with his infant daughter for the first time. 
I had no idea that he was not interacting with the child. That would be, I would have carted him off to a psychiatrist too. So the angel did continue to appear a number of times without being summoned, instructed Ezra to study the Talmud and to read from Kabbalistic books. The angel continued to appear just to praise him for his studying of the Torah. That's a heck of an improvement. And now his father began to appear instead of as a mournful old man in a black cloak as a man dressed in white and bathed in light. The patient continued to remain stable, dress well, attended religious seminary full time with his brother. And the personal angel still appears, but rarely, and only as an encouraging ally. Well, that is the best ending that that story could have possibly had. Because I didn't want the angel to go away completely. I think if you're lucky enough to have someone like that looking after you, you should hold on to it. Find a more positive way to channel it. And sometimes it takes an outside force, like a brother or a psychiatrist, to help you figure out what to do with that. Right. And so you have to wonder, you know, outside of religious beliefs, you can read just all over just ideas of, of guardian angels, of these protective spirits. And a lot of times they are seen as our as our conscience, as a way that we can almost kind of protect ourselves. So maybe things like our brothers and our psychologists and parts of our very consciousness. Our unconsciousness. Are our guardian angels. And maybe that's not just a story. No, maybe it's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen